Welcome to the Kent Lab Podcast, featuring long-form conversations offering wisdom, hope, and community. Now here's your host, Kent Lapp. Hello, friends. This is Kent Lapp, and welcome to this episode of the Kent Lapp Podcast. Today, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Patrick Miller. Our conversation centers around drugs in general, the different types of drugs, and the need for specificity, as well as the war on drugs and its origins, motivations, and its self-admitted and self-evident discrimination. It is worth noting that our conversation is just that. It's a conversation. It is not a presentation. And as such, we'll be missing lots and lots of key data, both related to the drugs themselves and to the war on drugs. For example, we talk a little bit about the institutional racism and discrimination inherent in the war on drugs, both in its original policies and in its enforcement today. And if you think that sounds crazy, like I did the first few times I heard that or read that, let me give you just a couple of supporting data points from the book, The New Jim Crow, which we talk about on the podcast. And I highly recommend if you wanted to get a little bit more or quite a bit more information on this. For example, the war on drugs began at a time when illegal drug use was actually on the decline. During this same time period, however, a war was declared, causing arrests and convictions for drug offenses to skyrocket, especially among people of color. The impact of the drug war has been astounding. In less than 30 years, the U.S. penal population exploded from around 300,000 to more than 2 million, with drug convictions accounting for the majority of the increase. Uh, We could look at other countries, like Germany, for example. In Germany, 93 people are in prison for every 100,000 adults and children. In the United States, the rate is roughly eight times that, or 750 people per 100,000. No other country in the world imprisons so many of its racial or ethnic minorities as the United States. In Washington, D.C., for example, our nation's capital, it is estimated that three out of four young black men and nearly all those in the poorest neighborhoods can expect to serve time in prison. Uh, studies show that the people of Studies show that people of all colors both use and sell illegal drugs at remarkably similar rates, and if there are significant differences in the surveys to be found, they frequently suggest that whites, particularly white youth, are more likely to engage in drug drug crime than people of color. In some states, black men have been admitted to prison on drug charges at rates 20 to 50 times greater than those of white men. And in major cities racked by the drug war, as many as 80% of young African-American men now have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized I'm sorry, legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. From a historical perspective, the lack of correlation between crime and punishment is nothing new. Sociologists have frequently observed that government Use governments use punishment primarily as a tool of social control, and thus the extent or severity of punishment is often unrelated to actual crime patterns. So that's just a little bit of a taste. There's lots more to get into here. Matter of fact, there's an entire entire book written on this subject, so we're not going to do anywhere close to the justice that it deserves. Um, but that's just an example of we're you know we're really just trying to start a conversation here. You're not going to get all of the information that you would like I'm sure from our conversation. It's also worth noting that this podcast is not a case or an argument for specific types of drugs, although you will hear Patrick and I's personal opinions on various drugs or substances as we talk through it. Um, However, 
He and I are both uh, really encouraged and fascinated by the clinical trials currently in progress at various universities and research hospitals across the country, as well as the promising nature of some of these drugs to alleviate suffering, uh, particular, particularly psychedelics such as uh, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, and others, and in a separate category, cannabis. While we're not pushing an agenda here, we would actually love to open up a conversation. And we invite you to be part of that. There is certainly much, much, much more to be said on this subject. One way you can be part of the conversation is by emailing your thoughts to me. Uh, and that would be the Kent Lap Podcast at gmail.com. And Lap is two Ps as in Peter Pan. The Kent Lap Podcast at gmail.com. Shoot me an email, let me know your thoughts. Um, you can also visit our YouTube channel. Just uh, search the Kent Lap Podcast on YouTube. Find our YouTube channel. Uh, you'll be able to find this video um, pretty easily, I'm quite sure, for our conversation here. And leave a comment. Leave your thoughts on YouTube. We would love to interact with you there. You can also say uh, hi on Twitter and Instagram, simply at Kent Lap. And if I could ask for one thing, um, if you're enjoying the podcast, you like what you hear uh, on this episode as well, would you go ahead and rate uh, the podcast on whatever podcast medium you use. Just give it a one star, two star, three, four, three star, five star, whatever, or go ahead and leave some feedback. That would be even better. I think that's it. So without any further ado, I give you my conversation with Patrick Miller. Please enjoy. Patrick Miller. Can't laugh. Good to see you again. Good to see you, my man. It seems like we've been uh, <laughs> under quarantine since we spoke. So We basically have. Yeah. You know, um, so we're going to talk about drugs in this episode. Great. It's going to be fascinating, interesting. Interesting. I feel honored to be your guest of choice for this topic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But speaking of quarantine, I was just thinking about this 15 minutes before you got here. Here's why I think the... Here's why I like the fact about what's happening right now in America. Because it's giving us all a taste of what a certain subset of citizens experience all the time. Mm -hmm. You know how tired we are of this right now? Mm -hmm. We're sick of it. We're over it. And you know what? For most of us, it's going to go away at some point, I suspect. The isolation. Yeah. Yeah. When you think about it, the, <clears throat> first of all, the, the rules made, uh, and I'm referring, to, I'm referring to the war on drugs and the laws that come out of that and how it affects particularly minority population in this country. So you think about, you think about first of all, rules that were made presumably or hopefully with good intent, with the information they had on hand at that time, but now new information has presented itself. Why are we not changing the rules quicker than we are? Okay, I'm talking about the quarantine okay. now yep. and, and COVID-19. All so, right. So to be clear, you're, you're making a connection between, um, you know, maybe we made rules at the beginning of the outset of this pandemic that with further information, we should reconsider yes. and maybe make changes. Yes. Okay. The last time that, uh, yeah, uh, yes. The last time we were on this podcast, uh, or thereabouts anyway, you know, th there was very much unknown with this whole coronavirus thing. Mm -hmm. We didn't know where it was going to go. We didn't know how it was going to pan out. Okay. So we shut down the economy. We shut down the country. I don't know if that was the right thing to do or not, to be honest. I, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's becoming increasingly absurd. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's the case. Yeah. So I'm tying back to, there's a subs, there's a, there's a group of people in our country that are experiencing this every day. And yeah. And, and these are the parallels. First of all, rules that were made out of hopefully good intentions with the information at hand, um, 
and uh, and then the drug war that happened in the sixties, mm-hmm. between the sixties and the eighties, um, sixty-two, I think. And um, okay, so then forced quarantine. Right. Which you see this as we funnel people into prisons and we funnel them, uh, if they're not in prison, they're on uh, parole. So you mm-hmm. have this sort of forced quarantine, closing businesses, closing people's shops because we can come into their home and just shut down their deal. And guess what? If they were running something or they were involved in some sort of business or they had a hustle going on the side, you know what happens to that hustle? It stops. It mm-hmm. goes out of business. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It just quits. Sure. Um, they don't even get the uh, a lot of the benefits of um, the free money. That, that we've we've gotten. I got my check the other week. Um, I just got mine last week. Yeah. So, you know, the forced closure of businesses and then the the um, the withdrawal of community, like the forced removal of community. Mm. You know, we're experiencing that. And I can, I can you know, technically, I guess, this whole time I could have went and, you know, sat in your front yard and been six, eight feet apart and that would have been fine. But there's still this... When you don't have church, when you don't have groups, when you don't have all of these things, you don't have the community that you normally have. Right. That's why I kind of like what we're experiencing right now. The thought did not occur to me until like 20 minutes ago, but we're experiencing at scale what a kind of a subset of our current society in this America has been experiencing for decades. Mm -hmm. So basically the people who are maybe lower on the distribution when it comes to the power structure or economic structure, whatever the people on the lower end of that, they, you know, particularly people who are minorities experience, um, you know, institutional racism. Yes. Um, through the, you know, the drug laws that yes, exist and exactly. so forth. Even yes. if those were set up initially with good intentions. Exactly. Right. I don't know if they were actually, I don't believe that they I, were. I don't actually. Either, I don't believe that they were. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that they were. Yeah. Matter of fact, um, there's some quotes. It's just, dude, there's some quotes. It It's just mind-bending. I, I don't get it, dude. Yeah. It's crazy. So it's fascinating to me to, to hear you draw that um, kind of parallel between the suffering that we experience under quarantine and the suffering that um, maybe minorities in disadvantaged areas um, suffer under as a result of unjust laws. I hadn't thought of that. Um, it's a reasonable parallel to draw, I think. And yep. then you're, you're saying, I think what you're saying is that you're kind of glad that we get to experience that and that it wakes us up to the plight of those who live under that every day. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think so. I, I think so. And even now, like there's, I mean, it feels like today is May the 11th as we're recording this. It, honestly, it seems like there's so many pressing issues right now because what we're going to talk about, I, I think, is a pressing issue. Mm-hmm. Drugs and the drug war and how it's affected certain people more than others. I think that's a, that's a very pressing issue. But also this COVID-19 thing is a pressing issue, dude. I'm just going to say, dude, something's not right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know we don't have a couple hours to talk about COVID and what we want to get into here, but dude, something is not right. Well, what do you mean by that? As in something's not right. Well, you, what I mean you feel is, like there's information out there that's not that you don't you don't have a trustworthy source of information. Well, I think that's part of it. Honestly, I don't think I don't even really know where to go for news anymore. I feel like a lot of people have feel that pain, but that's not that's not it. What I'm saying is back in January, okay, this thing was new, it was scary, it was 
it was unknown, and so we were prepared for the worst, right? So let's just go ahead and give the government the benefit of the doubt, okay? So they didn't know. You talking federal government? Yeah, here? the federal government the benefit of the doubt. So they 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 were have they were put in a position where there there was maybe not a lot of information. It was unprecedented. They didn't know where this was going to go. You didn't have much time. You're making some decisions, mm-hmm. right? It's May the 11th, dude, and there's information that had been out for weeks now that this thing is not what we first thought, and we have still have our country shut down. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, and but it seems like the federal government, at least President Trump, is kind of prodding states to reopen, right? Mm. So it's the to the extent that we're shut down, it seems more that it might be some states that are lagging. Because here in Tennessee, we're reopened, right, for the most part. I mean, here in Nashville, less so, but like where I live in Franklin, like it's pretty much really norm. It's normal life. Like I go to the gym, I go to the coffee shop. I okay, was, I was just there this afternoon. I mean, it's not as busy as normal, but yeah, I mean, people are out and about. Well, that's good to hear. And yeah, I honestly, I have been following it, so I didn't even know where this is coming from. So, it sounds like the it sounds like from a federal level, Trump's pushing to reopen. Well, My experience is here in Davidson County. You know, our CrossFit gym reopened. Um, this is Tuesday. They reopened last Monday. He lost forty percent of his business. And, you know, myself and others uh, kept paying our membership throughout this whole shutdown thing. Um, he decided to reopen last Monday. Wasn't, wasn't supposed to technically under Davidson County. Um, gyms were supposed to go with phase three. And that was going to be, what did he say, at least mid-June or something like that. And he was going to be, he was, he was done. If he would wait till phase three, he, it's over. Right. Um, In that he couldn't financially yeah, sustain it. Yeah, more people that. were going to drop out. He couldn't financially sustain it, and, and his, his business is over. Um, so he reopened classes of only nine attendees plus the instructor, 10 total. I like to go to the 11:30 class so and he he made a check-in 2 hours prior so I had a reminder set at 9:30 I kid you not at 9:30 I had the app open and I refresh 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 and mm-hmm. as soon as it popped up to reserve I'd hit it mm-hmm. and I'm telling you I was even doing that every time I was like either number six or seven. Wow. Like, like nine people were hitting like reserve at Everybody the same time. <laughs> people want to work out. You can go to restaurants. You can't go into a gym. It doesn't make any sense, dude. So yeah. I, that's, I guess that's my information at hand. Like it still feels like we're so shut down, so much more shut down than we should be at this point. Well, I think there's a couple things going on. One is you have the, because I think you and I have talked before about at, at the federal level, there seems to be a pretty big unelected bureaucracy that's between the the power structure, like the executive, the president and the people or, you know, even Congress and the people. So there's, there's all these alphabet soup agencies that end up kind of running everything. Oh, and yeah. so, Interesting. It, you know, and by everything I'm talking about, you know, just massive amounts of the federal code that gets written and rewritten. And mm-hmm. um, I'm not talking about, you know, there's always new laws being passed and all that mm-hmm. too, but I'm talking about just regulations and codes that keep being updated. And there's just massive, you know, agencies with, there's agencies with 10, 15, 20,000 people in it that you don't know, about, you know, that you've just not yeah. thought about in a, in 10 years because yeah. they're just they're obscure and they're just, but they're unelected. Yeah. They're unaccountable mm-hmm. career bureaucrats in those positions and they're, they're running things more or less. So you get a new president in there, he kind of, you know, he can change who's running those agencies, but it's hard to really dramatically change things. Oh yeah. You know, so yeah. you have someone, an outsider like Trump who he's pretty easy to hate in a lot of ways, but yeah. Um, 
you know, he's also really a great showman yep. and, and, you know, et cetera. But he comes in with these ideas of drain the swamp, mm. if that's really what he intended. Um, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and assume mm-hmm. yes. It's like, well, it's not really that easy because the people who kind of keep the train running on the tracks, even as poorly as that is sometimes, yeah. you know, it's like, what do you know? You know, yeah. you just came in like... You're just yeah. fresh off the campaign trail. You don't know anything about, you know, the price of rice in China. Yeah. And so it's like these, this guy knows, you know, yeah. he's going to tell you how it is. Mm-hmm. So it's like the, the president always has suffered from this kind of disconnect, mm-hmm. uh, you know, between. And so he's, you know, and it's easy to critique his, his um, kind of leading via Twitter, mm-hmm. you know, presiding via Twitter. And, you know, it's been boorish and all of that stuff on, on Twitter. But I am sympathetic to him having this voice that goes directly to the people that yes, isn't I agree. disseminated, yep. you know, by, you know, if there's a left wing yep. slant to the to the media or if there's, you know, these these institutions that just kind of... Um, and and well, let's not even get into the whole Flynn thing with the FBI and, you know, the FBI basically setting up Flynn to, you know, tried to frame him essentially and put him in prison. So it's, it's like, and now it's like, well, that's indicative of a president who's kind of at war with, yeah. you know, the, the long term, the insider, oh, you know, yeah, the, deep, the deep state yeah. essentially. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And so the president is, so back to the virus thing, mm-hmm. you've got the deep state or the, you've got this whole bureaucracy. Mechanism, yeah. All the technocrats yep. and, the, yep. you know, it's, yep. it's Dr. Fauci and his people and their mm-hmm. people and their people's people and all the 17 other alphabet soup agencies that all have people. Yes. Like they all kind of more or less are saying the same thing. And don't even get me started on like the CDC and these other non-governmental organizations that are have just turned out to be worse than useless in this whole yeah. thing. The yeah. WHO, for example, World Health Organization. Yep. Like, and we fund them to such an extreme amount. Yeah. It's like, yep. And they've just been utterly useless because they've become utterly politicized ideological yes. nightmares. Like yep. they're just, they've departed science a long time ago and they're just utterly useful, useless in this thing. But so you've got this, the, all these agencies between the president and, and the people and they're basically saying, no, shut down, shut down. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of that very conservative. If you're a bureaucrat, you don't gain anything from taking risks to move forward. Oh, you 100%. Know? Not 100%. Entrepreneur, 100%. There's, there's an upside. Yep. Bureaucrat, you take a risk, you lose your job. Yes, There's exactly. no upside to it. So, of course, they're going to say, stay closed, right? Yes. And But the president sees what's happening to the economy, needs to, and, and understands, too, I think that maybe the initial information was a little bit more it looked worse than might it has turned out right to. i'm even yep. willing to be charitable and say maybe what we've done has worked to a certain extent mm-hmm. you know with the social distancing mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. but it's like it's time to go back now exactly you know it's time you it's know, time to go back like, we've clearly <laughs> said we were going to keep room in the hospitals and we've done that like there's no hospitals that are at capacity and it's like not even close and a lot yes. of hospitals are closing because they you know are prematurely, you know, stop doing these other... Oh, yeah. The hospitals are running out of money. Yeah. But this is the concerning thing is at the time the hospitals are running out of money, they're getting paid to treat COVID patients. Now, to get paid to treat a COVID patient, you don't have to give them a test and for that test to be positive. They have to exhibit COVID symptoms. Right. Which is like a mile long, dude. Like there's there's almost shortness of breath, coughing, chest pain, um, body aches. Those are COVID symptoms, dude. I mean, it's so prevalent. And the data is very clear. Like if you look at New York, which got, you know, hammered by COVID compared compared to the other states. Um, but like if you look at their increased COVID deaths, but then you look at the decrease in deaths from cancer and heart disease. 
It's like, and you start to wonder. Like, okay, you start. No, when you start doing the math, and it's like, yeah, COVID killed you know a couple thousand more people than we're going to die anyway. But it's like, yeah, it definitely yeah. changes the picture a good bit. Well, according to the National Center for Health Stats, there have been about a million deaths. Okay, January to April, two thousand twenty. 230,000 from heart disease, 200,000 from cancer, 75,000 from COVID, 55,000 from accidents, and 52,000 from strokes. So to me, this, this, this is why I'm ready to call bull on the closing the gym thing, because this is saying then that yes. um, 230,000 heart disease, 200,000 cancer. Now, less cancer, but still so, but certainly more heart disease. You know what helps with that? Going to the gym and exactly. being healthy. Exactly. But no, that's shut down because of this, this, this the COVID thing. And that, that 75,000 number is nothing to sneeze at. But if you back out everybody that was dying from other comorbidities, and that's that you just pointed out, they don't even have to test them to call it a COVID case. That's and get right. paid, you know, yep. at COVID they rates. They have to exhibit a which COVID let's, symptom. Let's talk about the numbers a little bit. It's something like 5K you get from, I don't I forget the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. I obviously don't, yeah. you know, but it's like the government pays hospitals something like 5K when they treat somebody for um, pneumonia. But I think it's something like 37K or 39K. Don't quote me on that. But it's like 30K more at least. If, if they're on the ventilator, if though. If they're on the vent. That's for, if they're on the ventilator. For COVID, right? Yes. Versus, you know, so it's like you can make more if you co- if you code it a COVID case than you do if it's just pneumonia or something else. Hundred percent. And on the on the ventilator thing, here is an article front page Wall Street Journal today, Monday, May eleventh. They're starting to see now that they're starting to treat patients without the ventilator, and it's actually working better than I with the ventilator. That. Did you see that? Yeah. Now, part of the reason that they were so quick to jump to the ventilator, dude, this this blows my mind, but it's true. It's in the Wall Street Journal. I'm not making this up. And by the way. I'm not much of a conspiracy guy. I mean, please understand, like, I'm starting to become, I never had a problem with people that were. I mean, part of it's fascinating, okay? But I generally like to give people a benefit of the doubt, including the government, including the, pe- the powers that be, that type of a thing. So I'm not, a, I'm not a big conspiracy guy. This is not a conspiracy. This is true. This is in the Wall Street Journal, you know, front page. There's doctors that said in the beginning of this, they were using the ventilator because partly because they didn't want the air that the patients were breathing in the room of right. the hospital. Mm-hmm. So part of, it wasn't just to save their life, their life. It was party, partly as a safety measure So because when you put a ventilator in someone, they are breathing in and out completely into a tank. But when you use a, you know, you see these football players, like they'll run like a 99, these big guys will occasionally do this like 99 yard run or 60 yard, you know, uh, interception. Like the big guys aren't used to running the football and they'll go sit on the side and put oxygen on right away. Like they're starting to do more of that and it's working just as good. Oh, so just putting people on like a, just an assisted Assisted breathing, breathing like, type thing. like putting rich oxygen into people's lungs now is working better for normal cases than the ventilator. So we've, we've harmed people by putting them on the ventilator when we should not have. Mm-hmm. Again, do I think it was out of will and ill intent? No, probably not. Hopefully not, because, so, you know, but they're doing the best that they can. But, my, but my point is this thing just got weird so quick, man. It got so weird so quick. It got so convoluted and it doesn't seem like we are taking the steps to this point that we should be to correct it. Yeah. I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. I used to be, so I'm sympathetic to it, but it, I think it's what you see is probably more to do with unintended consequences mm-hmm. and, um, just the nature of organizations, which are, I agree. Um, any organization, 
Um, there's a certain amount of, because it's made up of humans, it's, there's just, there's a certain amount of blindness and yep. stupidity and, you know, um, all of that and yep. they, and just imperfections and limitations. And I think, you know, that's, you, government is maybe more prone to that than other organizations because they lack some of the other sure. incentives yes. to not be that way. Um, but I think it's maybe a little more frightening to every like I, I think the thing behind the conspiracy theories is a desire to kind of resolve my anxieties by trying to blame or pin what I'm feeling on something or someone. It's someone's fault or yeah. there is some threat out there. And yep. it's this, you know, it's like it's actually it's a pretty complex world, a lot of moving parts and there's nobody in charge. Yes. It's like that's actually maybe more frightening. But yes. I think it's actually the truth. Like yep. there's not some cabal that's running the world, mm-hmm. you know, and now there's people that are powerful and the, they move through power and, the, you know, some move up and some move down and, yep. and all of that. And, and there's certainly a corrupt element to that. And there's people, you know, who suffer because of that, but they don't, it's not this global cabal yes. run. This, somebody didn't decide to, depo- you know, depopulate the earth and create yes. COVID and all that jazz. Yeah. I agree. One of the stats that uh, we'll get into when we start talking about um, alcohol and tobacco and drugs and stuff like that is, uh, and this is this is actually from the CDC. So the CDC tracks years of potential life lost with alcohol-related deaths. YPLL, I think they call it, years of potential life lost, um, which I think would just be a fantastic measure to start tracking with COVID too because the average life expense expectancy in America is 78.6 years. Now, I'm having a hard time finding the average age of those who died from COVID because it's not it's not front and center on the number the C- I heard was CDCs, 78 and change. But, but the closest I could find was 78 years old. Yeah. So, dude, it, even that, you know what I mean? Like stat after stat is just not. It's just it's it's not adding up to be this this. Uh, it's it's not shaking out. Thank God to be this scare that we thought that it might be back right. at the end of January. So are the Democrat governors now dragging their feet and on the reopening, hold, uh, dragging their feet on the reopening under the hopes that they can kind of deep six the economy long enough to screw Trump? I actually don't know. I've not been following that. That's kind of what I suspect is happening. Because mm. you, you kind of have a Republican-Democrat split. Mm-hmm. which is insane if you think about a virus like why do we care you know republican democrat like how exactly. does that, you know how does that become politicized but yep. um everything gets politicized and it you does. know so you see republican states kind of reopening sooner trying to get the economy going you see trump tweeting going hey it's time to reopen let's go let's go you see the democrats and the bureauc- you know the whole bureaucracy is kind of going no yeah. Interesting. So you're 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 seeing that then. Mm-hmm. That's kind okay. of my perspective. I, I was on. I wasn't. So I'm not following it close enough. I hadn't known that, um, but makes sense. But the other reason that I'm glad that we're even seeing that is because then, as we get into this conversation around drugs, hopefully people's minds are a little bit more open to the fact that people in power do things in this country and have for some time based on political reasons alone. Mm-hmm. Totally. And that's absurd. It's absurd because now we're making decisions around COVID based on Republican or Democrat. And there's been decisions made around drugs and the drug war for years. It's Republican and Democrat. The primary concern, it doesn't seem like is often or always the actual welfare of the American people. Right. 
It's about who's in power. How can we stay in power? How can we further our agenda? How can we um, increase our bench strength? I mean, it's it's just I don't know how it'll it'll be interesting to see you know how this is going to play out in the coming decades because now we have just these two two parties that are so entrenched that just care about their deal. I mean, how is that even supposed to work? It just increases the everything becomes this kind of dualistic view then it's yeah. just it's good and evil it's left yep. and right it's republican democrat and it's and everything has to fall somewhere along that distribution that's like right there's no other axis along which things can manifest themselves. exactly it's like that's crazy who yeah. wants to live in that kind of world yeah it is crazy so hopefully if we can see now with COVID 19 going on how that things if COVID 19 can be politicized dude let me tell you, drugs can be politicized too. They, I mean, come are. on. If and they are. If COVID nineteen can, can be politicized, and there's really nothing safe. You know what I mean? There's really nothing that's outside of that uh, that ability to grab it and make it political as well. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about drugs. <laughs> can I ask you a question? Yeah. What What do you think of when you say the word drugs? Because that's a broad term. I mean, we can talk about drugs and mean like you know heroin, or we can talk about caffeine. Uh, when I think about drugs, I would think about uh, caffeine, uh, sugar, alcohol, tobacco. Um, and then this is going to get over my head, you know, relatively quickly, but I would lump in like schedule one type drugs, heroin, cocaine, um, whatever, go down the list. Um you know, cannabis is lumped in with Schedule One, which I mean, I can't even say that without laughing. Like it's, that's crazy. You know, so we'll get into that. Yeah, I would include all of that. Sure, but um, I would I would include sugar for sure, and yeah, I would not include alcohol. So sugar was the only one on the list there that kind of stuck out to me as an unusual one. Tell me more about that. We'll, we'll get into that. Okay. Um, so yeah, let's let's actually let's let's come back to sugar. Okay. Okay. I would like to hear. Um, I guess I'd like to make it clear for the people listening or watching to this kind of maybe what's in it for us or why we're interested. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, um, I'd just like to like make sure it's clear, like where we're coming from here. So where I'm coming from here with this drug thing, um, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in pattern recognition, like. Okay, so this happened, you, you do this activity and you get this result and then this you have this outcome. And then over here, you have this activity and this result and that's different outcome. But then you have all these cases. You, you can start to sense like some patterns, like what's working and what's not kind of generally. Like that's always been super fascinating to me. Um, performance optimization, very, very interested in. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, and I don't mean like steroids if you're trying to, you know, beef yourself up, but... Um, performance optimization, thinking clearly, performing properly, your body functioning as it should. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I think of, um, it's one of the reasons I, I care about health and fitness probably as much as I do is because it's, I think of it in terms of like your body's the horse and your mind is the rider. You know what I mean? Like if you're, if you're not taking care of that horse, you mean you're, you're, or AKA your body, like what that affects everything that you do. It affects, let's say you're a pastor and you're not taking care of your body. Guess what? You're lethargic. That's going to affect your study. It's going to affect your, it's going to affect those things. Um, if you're a business leader, you're not taking care of your body. It has an effect on your mind. It just does. And then, um, and then, um, so just in terms of like performance optimization, um, 
natural remedies. This one, you know, I, I'm going to forever owe my wife the uh, a debt of gratitude to hear, to hear with this because she was like, I, I did not grow up thinking this way. But how can you, if you have a problem going on in your life, your body, um, or your system, whatever it is, like how can you use natural remedies to fix that? That that should be like the first thing, mm-hmm. the first thing, you know, as opposed to what kind of man-made substance or what kind of a drug like a prescription drug or, you know, that type of a thing um, can you input into your body? Like, let's first look at the natural remedies, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's, I think it's hard to have a decent discussion on some of these drugs classified as, you know, air, air quotes drugs um, without being open to some of the natural remedies that they do, that they do have, like it or not. Like, you don't have to agree with me here. They just, they, they do. Like, it's proven, some of them. Not all of them, but some sure, of them. Sure, sure. Um, mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a big one. Huge. Big one for me. I'm very interested in this. Um, we know so much about the human body now. It's, it's very fascinating. But the mind, the brain is still the Wild West. Totally. We, we do not understand that thing, man. Um, we do not understand that thing very well. I mean, we're taking leaps and bounds. I mean, Mike, golly, I was watching uh, Elon Musk on Joe Rogan's podcast yeah, last week. I, I was, I saw that too. Oh man, did you, did you, did you listen to that whole podcast? <laughs> yeah, about the little. Oh, the neural net. Oh man, that neural net is. It sounds pretty exciting, to be honest. It does, and kinda. maybe a little scary. Um, so, uh, so obviously, we're taking leaps and bounds forwards with understanding the brain, but it's still very, it's still very. Uh, under misunderstood what's the term not misunderstood but it's not understood to the extent that um i think we're going to understand it in the future right. lord willing um but and, and mental health is um it's it's of high interest to me because i i struggle with it personally you know from time to time and um and i've struggled with it at times deep enough to create a very deep sympathy or empathy for those that struggle with it basically all the time right um, and we'll talk, we'll talk about how some of these drugs help with, um, mental health. So those are the things that are, that are, in, that make me interested in this conversation. Um, but then the second part is, and this is, this is actually, this is like the even more, um, at a, at a deeper level because, uh, drugs and the, the war on drugs and institutional racism are tied together deeply. They're deeply tied together. And the first time uh, I heard this was, oh man, for sure in the last two years. And it had to do with cannabis. And um, there was a, there was an article or somewhere I was reading that just kind of mentioned, you know, some of the rule or some of the U S laws around cannabis um, being kind of born out of racism Mm -hmm. And I got to be honest with you, I'm not proud of this, but the first probably two or three times that I heard that or read it, I just read right over it because I felt like um, I didn't know. And so there was a part of me that just was like, I I don't think so. You know, like they're saying that because they want that to be true. Um, They're saying that to advance their own cause. Um, They are, they're saying that to, you know, give some ammunition in their cause of, in the case of cannabis, maybe, you know, legalization in all of the states or whatever. Um, but there's no way like a law about cannabis back in the 60s or whenever would have had anything to do with racism. Like that was my, 
that was my reaction to that. The first three or four times that I heard that or read that. Uh, and I was very wrong. Mm-hmm. I was very wrong, dude. It, you can't have a conversation about the war on drugs without pulling in race. No. It's impossible. And, and really, it's broader than that. I think a lot of the, there's a lot of rules and laws that shaped our country, you know, in the late 19th and up to the mid 20th century that were deeply informed by racism. Yeah. Gun control laws were a result of, you know, fearful Southern whites and newly freed slaves, right? They, it was the first gun control laws were enacted around, around that situation, basically trying to prevent newly really? freed Negroes from owning guns. Was, you know, in the mid 1850s or, yeah, I don't know the exact date range, but the Whenever they, you know, after the Civil War, as yeah. as the black people were freed, finally, you know, they, some of them decided that they were going to, well, naturally, they would want to, you know, be secure in their own, in their own families, maybe have a, a gun to protect them from, and of course, they were going to face more threats than normal because of the context they were in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, white landowners didn't like that. So a lot of gun control came out of that whole thing. Drug laws for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. you look at the, you know, when talking specifically about cannabis, you know, you early 20th century. So it's the early 1900s. Um, the Mexican, there's a lot of Mexicans coming across the Southern border to work and something like 15 different governments in the West basically kind of clamped down pretty early on as, you know, looking to see how they could stop the flow of Mexican labor, basically Mexican, um, immigrants who were taking the jobs. Mm. Um, that was the fear. So they, you know, kind of demonized them, said that they were scary and came up and created the word, uh, marijuana mm-hmm. as a, as a way to basically as a way to create a frightening name for, the plant cannabis yeah. um, as a, and prohibited it as a way to try to prohibit Mexican. And so the, it, this happened, um, forget where was, where's the, where were the, uh, the Chinese forced into the slave labor to build railroads or maybe not, maybe it wasn't straight uh, slave labor, but it was, um, I don't know. Anyway, but they're talking about outside of America or inside I of America. I was thinking it was in the West. Um, okay. But anyway, there's, it wasn't slaves maybe per se, but all, but, but yeah. Um, they were, they used, uh, those workers used opium. And mm. so then they were, uh, you know, after that whole thing kind of ended, then some of the, you know, they experienced discrimination. And one of the ways that they were discriminated against, oh, they were the opiate smokers or the opiate users or whatever. And oh, so the, interesting. the Mexican workers who came across the, the whites basically used, the Americans used their prohibition of marijuana, this word that they invented, right. yep. you know, to try to prevent, you know, to try to keep, Mexicans away and mm. they were just it was kind of that I'm afraid of these people coming yep. across the border and taking yep. my job oh they happen to smoke this plant I'm scared of that you know and they made up a bunch of stuff that oh this you know makes them aggressive and it makes them yeah. go after white women and yes. you know all this crazy stuff well what's so crazy about that is if it started with the Mexicans coming across and that yeah that you're totally right that's marijuana is a nickname that's not a scientific term at all and it's not coincidental that it sounds like a Mexican city or state, you know, town or like yeah. it does, that kind of has a Mexican ring to it. And that's why, because they were trying to to tack it on with the, with that, uh, those, those people and kind of, you know, demonize it in a sense. Yep. Um, where was I going with that? You were saying, 
those people coming across. Well, it's just all of that is deeply tinged with racism. It is, yes. And what's crazy is we were saying about how it's going to have those effect on, say, the Mexican people coming across. But then all those years later, we said the same thing uh, with black people. And it wasn't true in either case. So that's that's where I'm coming from here. That's why I'm interested in this. Um, that's why I'd love to have um, a discussion about it here. Maybe not just one. Maybe this is the first of many or several. Um, because it is a big topic. And, and I don't feel... I feel like it's... I f- Here's how I feel, man. I feel that we have a perfect storm um, kind of at our feet now to talk about some of these things. A few reasons why. 20 years ago, you and I could have been sitting right here having this conversation, and it would have hit quite a few more deaf ears than this conversation will. Um, and this one's going to hit deaf ears too, by the way, like there's, there's people that have already checked out probably because we're about to talk about drugs, right? you know? So, and I'm, I'm, I get it. I'm, you know, it's their prerogative. Um, but culturally, like with Western evangelical Christianity 20 years ago, this was not, we were not ready to talk about this. We were not ready to really think deeply. Like, wouldn't you agree? Like that's, that's an, uh, those, these things are always a little bit unfair because it's a blanket statement. Okay. So I know there's plenty of exceptions, but I feel like in general society and unfortunately society is sort of leading us here, but, um, I feel like we're, we're ready to here, at least be open to some of these things in a way that we weren't 20 years ago. So You're talking specifically about like trying to be more careful about how we categorize drugs and which ones are helpful and which ones are not and, yeah. and have more honest and open conversations about pros and cons versus just this kind of unhelpful lumping I, them all together. Yes. Well, and, I think that's thing one. And then thing two, and, and I know a lot of people aren't prepared for that, for, for what I'm about to say, but I'm, I'm ready to call a drug war, dude. It's not working. Right. No, it doesn't work. It's not working. And I know there's a lot of people that that would be ready for the first conversation about how that maybe we shouldn't lump cannabis in with um, heroin mm-hmm. <laughs> in the same class. Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably a lot of people that are open to hearing that that aren't ready to hear that maybe we should just end this drug war. Uh, but I but I think there's people that are ready to to talk about ending this drug war now that weren't 20 years ago too. So that's that's kind of when I think about kind of perfect storm or maybe a good time for these types of conversations. That's like generally speaking at a cultural level, at a societal level, and in evangelical Western Christianity. Like even there, I think we're starting to be a little bit more open to some of these things than we were in the past. Um, And then the other thing I think about is um, we are in Nashville, Tennessee, and it's kind of like, man, if not us, then who? You know what I mean? Like, no offense, but we're not in Timbuktu, Iowa. Mm Mm-hmm. We're in Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. It's one of the fastest growing cities in America. There's a lot going on right now. It's the capital of healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the buckle of the Bible Belt. Like there should be, we should have things here in this city, and with what, and 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 furthermore, Nashville is known for its authors and its you know artists and oh, that the creative type of, types. The yeah. creative types. Sure. So I guess what I'm saying is, if you and I aren't going to have this conversation, who is? Mm-hmm. It's time to have the conversation. You know, when looking back at how we've dealt with this kind of thing in the past, 
you know, our, our initial response wasn't always very good. And so I think it's good to question our initial response, mm-hmm. you know, like looking back 20 years ago or 30 years ago and seeing how did we respond to the cultural changes that were happening as a result of, you know, the increased drug use by the youth of America in the 60s and 70s. Like, yeah. how, you know, how we responded to that may not have been helpful in the long yes. term, right? And it's like, that's what you're saying. And yes. the drug war. You know, you go back, I was kind of in preparation for this conversation. I was looking at some of this data um, coming out of the Civil War. So um, morphine is, a you know, kind of one of the core opiates. Um, and morphine wasn't really kind of discovered or, or isolated from the, the opiate plant until the early 1800s. But then in the Civil War, it became like the the um, invention of the hypodermic needle coincided with the isolation of morphine from the opiate to deliver, you know, really analgesic properties, you know, in a very kind of more effective way than any other tool they ever had before. So it had profound um, kind of impact on how war was waged in a way. It's like you could do a lot more if you had morphine, like you could, you could, um, reduce suffering from your soldiers and you could get them back in the fight more quickly, et cetera. So that was the first time that morphine was really kind of broadly used as an analgesic. You know, it was ever since, well, back before the time. So Genesis was written in the maybe what, uh, 1500 BC, I think is generally 14, 1500 BC. So going back to like 3000 BC in lower Mesopotamia, um, they were cultivating opium, right? And that's where the opiate, plant kind of started. So it was, you know, and then you look at people using opium, chewing on the opium leaf and kind of using it as a tobacco chew essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but for its, for its analgesic properties, mm-hmm. pain reducing properties, and they would use that in war and, and so forth, but it was never kind of amped up kind of the rocket fuel kind of approach, you know, until mid 1800s when they figured out that they could get morphine out of this plant, they could isolate morphine mm. and then administer it via hyperdermic needle. Interesting. So. Now, wait, I missed the, which war did you say? So the civil war was the first war, the first big um, conflict where we... The civil war in America. Yeah, where we used That's morphine. when we started using morphine to inject straight into our bodies. Um, that's when it became pretty broadly used in the soldiers in the war. Yeah. Really? So there was a... That is recent, dude. Pretty recent. And wow. then there was a bunch of um, addicted to morphine soldiers that came out of that war. Mm-hmm. And there was... Um, you know, we didn't respond correctly to that. We treated yeah. those, the society treated those people as if they were insane, right? And they put yes. them into insane asylums. And it was actually, um, it was, it was doctors who were being, you know, maybe not sloppy is not the word, but they certainly weren't very careful with how they administered these drugs. There wasn't a yes. lot of discipline around, you know, w- worrying about whether somebody's going to get addicted or whatever. It's like, they just right. used it pretty broadly. And, yes. you know, so, Doctors, you know, basically got these people addicted and then, you know, they went out into, after the war ended, they were trying to reintegrate into society. They were mocked. They were sidelined. They were put into um, insane asylums and, you know, they were just destroyed a lot of lives. These, you know, kind of morphine addicted soldiers out of the civil war. So all that to say, we look back sometimes and go, you know what? Our response to this thing was unhelpful. And I think it's time to do that with the the war on drugs in that... Um, you know, in the seventies when Richard Nixon really initiated that conversation, mm-hmm. right? He was like, he's kind of going to do the law and order thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at what was going on in the society, then you had a, 
you had a, gener- a, a generation coming up who Nixon wanted them to fight in his war against the communists in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And most of human history, when you had 18-year-olds and you had a war, if you told them to go, they just went. Yeah. You know, and so for the first time, it's, it's not, I'm not, I don't know how it's related to the increased drug use, particularly psychedelics, but it'd be interesting to think about how did like the, this rite of passage that was emerging for this huge amount of young people that they were now going through without the adults in the room, essentially, mm-hmm. LSD and, and maybe marijuana, you know, et cetera, mm-hmm. and cannabis. So it, it something changed their state of mind that mm-hmm. they responded to this call differently. Yeah. Eight, you know, for most of human history, you tell a bunch of 18 year olds, hey, we're going to go shoot the enemy. They're there. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't much question about it. It's yep. like it's for, you know, God and country. Let's go. Yeah. Um, and here people are like, no, you know, I don't think so. Yeah. Like, I, I don't, this doesn't seem like a just war to me. Yeah. Like, I don't think I'm going to do that. Yeah. Um, and, and it would be difficult to argue that, you know, the, that drugs didn't play some role in mm-hmm. that shift in their state of mind to yep. go. Um, no, you know, we yeah. can get more into the psychedelics and their impact on mm-hmm. people's states of mind, et cetera. But it, it would be impossible to separate those two yeah. outcomes, I think. Yeah. And I think that's part of why you saw Nixon and, and the kind of moral, the, the later moral majority on the right kind of really clamp down. And it's like, it's really hard to maintain a kind of, um, law and order America that requires a lot of expendable 18 year olds. Mm -hmm. If you have people who are broadly thinking on their own Mm -hmm. and kind of broadly thinking about what might be best for society over the long term, Mm -hmm. rather than just kind of blind allegiance to, you know, a ruler. Yep. I agree. One thing I did want to say, which everyone already knows, or maybe they don't, but we'll just say it. I'm not an expert. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I'm not an expert. Um, I am not a doctor. I am not a physician. I am not a scientist. I'm not a botanist. <laughs> There's a lot of things here that I am not. I'm interested, uh, somewhat read up, um, but not an expert. You shared so, earlier why you were why you cared about this, yeah. and I just wanted to throw in my two cents on that. Is like one of the reasons I care about this is because I'm a dad. Mm. I'm a dad of teens, and I care deeply about you know, what they're experiencing and going to experience and what kind of world that they're going to go into. And I want to be able to help them kind of map their worldview as best as I can to prepare them for that. So I'm not an expert, but I want to, as carefully as possible, map reality in some of these ways. That's an interesting, that's an interesting thought because I do tend to think sometimes too much in terms of constants. So like, how I was raised is how I'll be raising my kids and that's how they'll be raising their kids. But you know what? I wasn't, there wasn't Instagram when I was raised and there's going to be Instagram when Lincoln goes through his teenage years. Um, Cannabis wasn't legal in very many States. I don't think, or any state when I was being raised, it might be legal here when Lincoln's in his teenage years, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? There's differences. So Mm -hmm. we, we need to, we need to be able to respond and to be able to, um, to be able to have helpful, you know, godly wise thoughts around these things and and it's it's going to be difficult if you just don't know anything about it but that that does lead to yeah i kind of shared you know where i'm coming from here why i'm interested i'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about it too well it's it's driven that it's driven by that it's driven by well a i have a natural curiosity about how the world works but i really do 
love being a dad to teenagers and it is challenging me in ways that I didn't expect mm. because they're challenging people. They're like, they, they all think for themselves to a certain extent. Yes. It's like, okay, well, and so they make me better. They make me think, you know, well, they, we rub up against each other sometimes yep. and yep. it's like, oh, maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah. Maybe it's like, <laughs> you know, and so, but, but I want to s- protect them. Yep. from as much suffering as possible, but expose them to a sufficient amount of stress so that they're ready for whatever they face. Yeah. So that's the tricky balance in parenting, I think. Yes, is, yeah. You know, getting that right. But when it comes to things like drugs who, you know, they have acquaintances who they've, who've died because mm-hmm. of drugs, you know, um, fentanyl and heroin and, mm-hmm. and so forth. Which I think you, if as a society, if you don't update your collective kind of awareness and intelligence about this kind of thing, um, falsehoods can take root and become yeah. cultural norms and yes. become old wives' tales. Yes. And, and it can hurt people, frankly, and it yep. could cost them lives. 100%. Um, kid we grew up with. Right across the street, and then one house, one or two houses down. Uh, my brother Ben and I, you know, he he died. I mean, he, like literally every day. Like we were, <laughs> we'd hang out every day. Uh, he was wicked good on the skateboard, man. He was so good. We met him when he was twelve, and uh, you know, when you're twelve to fifteen, like you're about those types of things. But then he sort of got into his life was tough, man, and he, I think he was looking for a shelter, and he found it in hard drugs, and he he died from an overdose. Years ago, from it was either fentanyl or heroin, I believe. Um, and I, but I don't have a lot of friends that have OD'd. You know what I mean? Like not many at all. Uh, it wasn't um, prevalent in the circles that I was in growing mm-hmm. up, which I'm I'm grateful for. Mm-hmm. Um, the war on drugs. So <laughs> I, I'm I don't think it's working. I don't think it's effective. I think it's bull, mostly, to be honest with you. Here's the part I don't understand. I don't understand why we're not raiding college dorms and why we're not raiding white suburban neighborhoods. We don't even have much of a war right now. We have selected battlegrounds. That's what we have. We have specific battlegrounds across this country, mostly um, targeting urban areas. And minorities. And minorities. Why people use pot all the time on college dorms? Yeah. They use cocaine too. You know that, <laughs> and they use a whole lot more than that too. Right. White suburban neighborhoods. America's doing drugs, man. I mean, but we're targeting we're targeting selected locations. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, um, and it's just and and it's not that effective. No, and when you say it's not that effective, are you talking about the overall we, use of? drugs in a harmful way or are there uh, because, less people, because like, we're, we're, we spend the, $50 billion a year and nothing changes. Yes. Yes. Look, the same people. If people want to do drugs, we should, we should know this by now. We started this in the, what'd you say? The seventies. Um, I need to check that date. Cause now it's bothering me. I can't, I, I want to say either 62 or something. Uh, we'll, we'll check the date in a second, but we've been trying this for a while, man. I mean, 50 years, 40 years. We, we've been at this a while. Like, we don't go to war with Vietnam for 50 years. And if it's not working, we still keep doing it. 
We don't have the Civil War for 30 years in this country. And if it's not working, we still keep doing it. Well, okay, so I'm, I would actually argue that we do, unfortunately. But your point remains, we shouldn't. Um, no, so we shouldn't. So it's like um, the war on poverty, it's like, you know, doesn't. It's like you, it's just a transfer of wealth from one from producers to yeah. non-producers and the same people stay rich and the same people stay yeah. poor for the yeah. most part. Like yeah. when the government declares war on something, that doesn't necessarily, well, it doesn't seem to have any kind of correlation to its elimination. Or, you know, 100%. Um, so government declares war on poverty. Poverty seems to grow. Government declares war on terror. It certainly doesn't seem to, you know, yeah. re- eliminate terror or yep. even really reduce it all that much. And it's like, so I would, I would, we do, like the war on terror, the government, there's elements of the government that do want perpetual war because it funds their programs and their mm-hmm. whole thing. And that's what you see happening with the, you know, everybody kind of loves to hate the military industrial complex mm-hmm. and, and that maybe that's a pejorative for some people and maybe it's a point of pride for others, but it is something that, you know, demands being fed. And so you kind of have to keep at war if yeah. you're going to keep them busy. And the same is true on the drug war side. Yeah. You know, there's a whole industry around it. There's a whole prison industry. There's private oh, prisons yeah. that need to stay filled. The beds need to stay filled. You know, it's yeah. like the hotel guy's out of business. The guy that owns the prison, he's rocking he's and rolling. Doing good, you yeah. know, so. You're totally right. Um, and partly what I mean with, but, but also just to touch on that real quick. So br- broadly, if we're going to fight a war on terror, where someone's going to come from within our own country or come into our country from the outside and blow people up with bombs. That war is fighting as long as we need to fight that war. Or, or whatever we got to do to keep our people safe. Mm-hmm. I'm all, I get it. Right. I don't care if that goes 50 years. But when you have a high number of... 67,300 deaths in America in 2018, okay? This is, this is the total deaths from overdoses in America in 2018, 67,300. Now, that does include prescription opioids, and I could not find a, bro- I could not find a statistic that had that broken out. It may exist. I couldn't find it. If someone's listening, email me, the can't let podcast at gmail.com. So here, here, that's a high number, Patrick, mm-hmm. 67,300 from overdoses in America in 2018. That's a high number because that includes, again, I repeat, that includes prescription opioids. Mm-hmm. That's probably the majority. Mm-hmm. We're going to war over 67,300 overdoses a year. Again, it's a high number because that includes the opioids. We're so, going to go to war when more than that die from alcohol every year. That, that number is about 88,000. Mm-hmm. The best case for legalization of any drug that's coming to mind right now, I'm quickly trying to think, is there an exception to this? And there may be one, but it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be heroin. It wouldn't be cocaine. It wouldn't be... Maybe there's an exception. But the best case for the legalization of all drugs is alcohol. The fact that alcohol is legal in this country and we're still around and some people abuse it and a lot of people don't, it's alcohol is lethal, dude. It is deadly. Right. And it's, and it's legal. Okay. Um, 
the fact that alcohol is legal in this country and things aren't worse than they are is, in my opinion, is it's the best case for drug legalization that's out there. Right. There are some societal costs, obviously, to having alcohol be legal, right? But we decided we're willing to pay those societal costs in order to enjoy the whatever benefits there might be. Yeah. So um, you're right. There. I mean, that's and and alcohol. Like, if you look at the amount of people that die from alcohol. And you look at the role that alcohol plays in crime, like it's way outsized any other drug. Oh, by oh. Um, by a huge margin of vehicle deaths in twenty fourteen. Alcohol was responsible for a third of them of of uh, driving fatalities. There was ninety nine hundred and sixty seven deaths in twenty fourteen driving fatalities. Which, by the way, I can't help but mention it, like. You know, you know how many of those 9,967 deaths we heard of in 2013? I didn't hear of many at all. Right. But when there's one death from a self-driving car, you know what I mean? You yeah. know who hears about that? Everybody hears Everybody about that. <laughs> yeah, we all know the, we all, all the particulars yep. of it. Exactly. But of uh, the driving deaths in this country in 2014, alcohol accounted for 31%. Um, <clears throat> let's go back to, let's talk about some of the... Um, Racially motivated um, rules, laws, policies that were put into place. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Nixon. Is that kind of where it starts? You think? I think it started before then. In general, like you had the, like I mentioned, like the the whole fear of the Mexican immigrants. Like that was maybe early 1900s mm-hmm. um, when that kind of really started. Nixon was the first one to kind of really crack down and and say we're going to start, you know, aligning the federal government's efforts in a way to knock out, you know, drug use, if you will. And that did seem like it was heavily, drugs were heavily enforced, to your point, you know, the prohibition against drugs were heavily enforced in minority neighborhoods. And it was seen largely as a black man's drug or like marijuana, cocaine, a lot of those drugs, well, cocaine to a lesser extent, but marijuana um, in particular was hugely enforced. there's so many people in prison even now still for marijuana offenses um that were i mean you think about putting somebody in a in a prison cell for for a plant like that's that's crazy it's absurd it's absurd and just to touch on this is one thing i wanted to point out too and talk about like the war is not working because a lot of people think here's why here's why here's why i gave that stat about the the amount of overdose every year in this country is because i thought patrick i thought even as recent as several weeks ago that Illegal drugs are super dangerous, and they're, you know, killing a lot more people than they are, frankly. That was my assumption. I figured if we're taking tanks down our own city streets and sending in SWAT teams and beating down doors and shooting people before they wake up and taking a mom with three kids and sending her to jail for 15 years because one of her kids had... Um, marijuana in a locked box in the attic. If we're doing this in America um, and we're spending the billions of dollars, it sounds like that we are, um, and we're dividing homes and we're herding people like cattle into these holding areas and putting them in quarantine, and then when they get out, they're on parole and they can't get a job because they're a felon and they can't get public housing and they can't get food stamps and and basically shunning them from society... 
I just assumed if we're doing this, this is really bad. Mm. This is a war worth fighting. Must, right. This, this, this must be awful what's going on. Um, but when you look at the statistics, man, it's just not. And this is the other thing that I assume too is that, okay, this war is worth fighting because surely like we're going after the people who sell it. Like that's, that's who we're capturing here. That's who we're sending to prison and it's not. Four out of five drug arrests are users, not sellers. Right. So here's a, dude, this, to the, to the point on racism. Okay, this is John Ehrlichman, chief domestic advisor to Richard Nixon. The Nix, this is a direct quote. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Wow. That's not hearsay. That's That's not a rumor. That's a direct quote. That's basically, well, that's evil. That's evil. That is evil. Here's, Here's President Nixon himself. Here's this ad that was being run. Here's the ad. So, okay, so I'll just read it. The advertisement began with frightening music accompanied by flashing images of protesters, bloodied victims, and violence. You're starting to get the picture already. A deep voice then said, It is time for an honest look at the problem of order in the United States. Dissent is a necessary ingredient of change, but in a system of government that provides for peaceful change, there is no cause that justifies resort to violence. Let us recognize that the first right of every American is to be free from domestic violence. So I pledge to you, we shall have order in the United States. At the end of the ad, a caption declared, this time, vote like your whole world depended on it. Nixon. Viewing his campaign ad, Nixon reportedly remarked with glee that the ad, quote, hit it, it hits it right on the nose. It's all about those damn Negro Puerto Rican groups out there. Hmm. It's the president of the United States, dude. This Bloody is in on. 1972. Didn't just say 1972. Playing on our fears of those that are different from us. Yeah. To, well, for their own political power. Yes, exactly. That's... It's scary. It is. It's, and it's so starkly against everything that the gospel draws us into. Yeah. You know, it's like when you look at the life and the person of Jesus and who he was for. Mm-hmm. Like he was for the... The downtrodden. He was mm-hmm. for the poor. He was for the minority. Mm-hmm. He was for those who were disempowered. Yes, he was yeah. for for the weak. Yeah, he was for the weak. And and to to live in a in a society where you know we just have these systemic, still these remaining systemic um, problems with just being evil to, mm-hmm. to the same kinds of people that Jesus loved. Like, mm-hmm. That does need to change. Yes. 
Yeah. I and totally so I think agree. it starts, and it starts by this kind of conversation. It does. And I think, man, and, and it's motive, but, but your point, I, I don't want to move over that. I don't want to pass over this point too quick though. I think, I think you, you touched on the key thing, which is the driving motivation here is the gospel. That's, that's the driving, that's what's going to enact change here. Um, because we're not okay having some brothers and sisters of ours be treated differently than others based right. on the color of their skin or their socioeconomic status, that type of a thing. And, that desire for equality that's that's driven from the gospel that like that's that needs to be the motivation here right right it's that um desire to see people well to see everyone have an equal opportunity yes. because everyone is created equally in the image of God. Yes. 100%. It's like, that's one of the most, you know, profound things that Genesis laid out. It's like at that time when that was written, this idea that man and woman are both equal in the image right. of God, both made in the image of God. Yeah. Like nobody believed that back then. Yeah. Good like point. That was a, that was a radical thing yeah. to say, <laughs> you know? And so that's God, right? Yes. It's like, and so it's like now to the extent that we can make that, to the extent that we can heal that, we ought to work towards it. Yes, totally agree. Yeah, here, here's the date I was looking for. So, by the way, this book's really great. The New the, Jim Crow. The New Jim Crow. I've heard of yeah, it. I haven't read the, it. Yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of statistics, and so it's taking me some time to read it because it's very data-driven, but, which I like. Um, but, uh, you know, here it says, most people assume the war on drugs was launched in response to the crisis caused by crack cocaine in inner city neighborhoods. Uh, one thing to point out here is that crack cocaine is uh, the same. You have crack cocaine, you have powder cocaine. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, more poor people are using the crack cocaine, which is a, what would you call it, like a liquid form mm-hmm. or like a gel type substance, a basically? Liquid-ish Liquid. Form, yeah. um, Mostly injecting that with a needle, correct? Or, can, or, or you smoking. can also burn it. Okay. Smoke it. Okay. Yeah. So that's crack cocaine. And then powder cocaine is what you see a lot of times in the movies. If someone has Snorting that white it. powder and you put in a little trail and you snort the trail, that's, that's crack cocaine. It's the same thing. They're, they're, they're both, they're both, they're equally as deadly. A lot of people don't know that because up until recently, the rules in this uh, country were if you got caught with crack cocaine, Mandatory sentencing was a hundred times worse than powder cocaine because powder cocaine was used by rich white kids. Crack cocaine was used by poor black kids. Kaching. So, all right. So there is no notion to the truth that the war on drugs was launched in response to crack cocaine. Okay, I think that's what this is what a lot of people thought. Like the war on drugs this is being launched in response. Nope. President Ronald Reagan officially announced the current drug war in 1982, before crack became an issue in the media or crisis in black poor black neighborhoods. The Reagan administration hired staff to publicize the emergence of crack cocaine in 1985, three years after the drug war was declared, as part of a strategic effort to build public and legislative support for the war. The media campaign was an extraordinary success. I'll say. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, there's no part of this that's funny. It's just so absurd. I mean, it's crazy. You know, I I think maybe it would be, um, we should at some point kind of break out the different drugs that we're talking about when we talk about drugs, because we've thrown about a couple different kinds. And I think that it's helpful, especially as it relates to talking to my kids about drugs. I found it helpful to go pretty specifically, like 
this, 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 and this, as yes. much as I know and can tell about yes. these various things. And yep. so it's like you've got your, um, well, we've talked a lot about cocaine. Yep. And so that's an opiate, mm-hmm. uh, I, I believe. Um, so you've got that whole opiate family. You've got the... What else is included in there? Opiate, you've got... Well, her- heroin. Okay. So from least powerful to most powerful, the opiates go from codeine. So codeine is the least kind of processed, I guess. So codeine, hydrocodone, which is often used um, in pain pills, morphine, which is used obviously, and then oxycodone, which is a common prescription pain pill. that Oxycontin, right? Yeah, it gets abused a lot. And then hydromorphone. Well, oxycontin gets abused a lot, dude. Yeah. And then you've got fentanyl, of course, which is like, you know, crazy powerful. It's like a little dose the size of a pinhead, like can jack you up. Like, I think theoretically could kill you, I think. Uh, It's like wildly powerful. Wow. Um, You said fentanyl. Fentanyl. And these are all part of the opioid family? Those are all different opiates. Yeah. And you Uh, mentioned morphine, right? Because that's one too. Morphine's in that. Yeah. Morphine was kind of one of the early opiates that were um, isolated. Okay. Um, And then... You've got amphetamines, which act on the... So opiates act on the dopamine system to a certain extent. Mm. Neuro, it's one of the effects of it. And then amphetamines do too. Amphetamines, one of the systems that they act on is that dopamine receptor in your brain. Mm. Um, so those are the commonly abused. You know, there's a, those, there's a lot of abuse that happens in those categories. Um, you have psychedelic drugs, mm-hmm. you know, that are, and this is why I think it's important to draw a distinction because growing up in an evangelical fundamentalist church, I just thought of drugs as being drugs. So like I thought of, you know, cocaine as being largely the same as heroin being largely the same <laughs> as, you know, maybe LSD or something. Yeah. And it's like, well, nothing could be further from the yeah. truth. And, yeah. and frankly, when you're talking about things that can kill you, it helps to speak about it with some specificity. Like, yeah. you know, if, if you. Helps quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so I think it's helpful. You know, I try to sit down and talk to my kids. It's like, you know, are are there drugs in your school? Well, what kind of drugs? Are we talking about, is there, you know, a junior high guy hitting the vape pen and getting some nicotine? Is he getting some THC? Is he getting, you know, is he popping no-dos to stay awake? Yes. Is he, you know, smoking a joint? cannabis is he like or is he using heroin or is he using you know cocaine or you know meth or you know ecstasy or you know Mm -hmm. like i want to know specifically because there's different risks and and so forth that you need to be aware of but don't you think this is by intent patrick and let's 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 pick up where you because just interject for just a second don't you think the very fact that we need to be specific about drugs don't you think that was by design too the war on drugs. It yeah. all got lumped in together. Sure. Good, bad, indifferent. You know what I mean? It's all lumped in together. So now when we just say no, it's like, well, just say no. Like, okay, just say, say no to all of it, apparently. You know what right. I mean? We're having a war on all of it, apparently. Right. We're going to war against a uh, plant. Right. So no, say no to coffee? Say no to, to, are we saying no to everything or just, you know, so it's like, yeah. no. It's like, but the lines get drawn along political power, you yeah. know, um, Whoever's in power gets to draw those distinctions at the time. Um, but so obviously there's risks, risks for addiction that happen with um, these dopaminergic drugs, drugs that act on the dopamine system. Like there's, an, there's a pretty interesting um, kind of system 
around how they like create a, it seems to, and I'm no expert. I've just read a bit about this, but it seems like they build like these dopaminergic drugs when you abuse them instead of, instead of you kind of your brain developing along a healthy pathway, it builds this kind of fake little personality almost yeah. sub personality yep. inside of you. That's very closely tied to the, um, you know, the things that are going on in your life around you mm. um, when you're abusing and, and, acting out that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, it does get very hard. People get dependent upon these dopaminergic drugs and, yes. you know, it's, and at a very deep level, it's the dopamine system seems to tell us when we're engaged in activity that is meaningful. Mm-hmm. It's like, so when we're acting, you know, getting up and getting, going to our job and doing a good job at it and making progress and coming home, we, there's a feel dopamine yeah. surge. That's, that, and that's a, that's, that's a, that's, I want to say scientific, that's probably not the right word, but that's a, there's actual things going on that make you feel that way. There's a biological response yes. that well orients you in the world in a way that is helpful to you. Exactly. It's not like, oh, I feel good today. No. Unless it's like, like random thought. It's like, no, there's actually things going on that make you feel good today. There's actual chemicals in your brain and your body and your brain are designed in a way to reward yes. meaningful activity like that. Yes. Right? And so when you abuse the, those reward centers by giving them... Um, you know, rewards without having done the work of doing something meaningful, you can see how that could short circuit our whole reward system and lead yes. us lead us astray. And so they become enticing for that reason. It's like we're yep. there's a lot of us that you know tend to we, we're tempted by looking for shortcuts to meaning. Let's say yeah. you know yes, um, that's a good point. And so that's a that's why that's so compelling. But it's like that's that's those dopaminergic drugs. That's not to generally alcohol. People generally, like alcohol tends to have kind of a dulling effect in some other areas. It's not the same, not entirely the same system. So there's other systems in play with alcohol addiction that I don't really understand all that much either. But I wanted to draw that distinction that like alcohol is something you can get addicted to. People do. Like something like one in five people that ever drink alcohol get addicted to it. Alcohol is one of the only drugs that um, causes people almost universally to become aggressive. Yes, if I you, want to make that point at some point. And you, you know, just none of the other happen. drugs that we're talking about universally make people aggressive. Um, That's right. That I'm aware of. Um, alcohol or alcohol does. Alcohol is connected to more than fifty percent of the murders in this country. So, um, over half of the people who commit murders in this country are using alcohol at the time they do it, and more than half of the people who are killed by murder are using alcohol when they are killed. Really? Um, That's fascinating. It's a very high indication for mortality that way. Um, So alcohol, there's not not all that much to recommend it in terms of a drug. Um, That's right. You know, so it doesn't, you know, there's no real known health benefits to it. Exactly. Right. So that's that. Like with, with caffeine, that's a mostly a mind stimulating drug. It it Mm -hmm. alters your mind. It's a psychoactive drug. It doesn't appear to have any real, like negative to it. Like there's not a lot of negative. And you, some people experience it that way. Like some people say they don't like caffeine because they feel jittery and anxious. Mm-hmm. And so they just stay away from it. But most people um, say, no, it's worth the extra productivity. And it really has changed the productivity of the West since we've, 
become caffeine drinking really people. oh absolutely like our hours our our circadian rhythms are different we are up more we sleep less oh that there's when a did lot this of, happen well there's a lot of work in fact michael pollan who wrote um right changing here. your mind how to change your mind how to change your mind he is doing work on caffeine right now or has just done some work on it oh um, interesting so it's very fascinating but that's generally a psychoactive agent that we're open to using, um, and it doesn't seem to have you know any real negative or real downside. It does have what's called an LD50, lethal dose, the lethal dose at which 50% of people die at that dose. So that's a common, mm. like LD50 is a drug term. It's like, yep. how much do you need to kill half of the people who take it at that dose, yep. roughly? Um, LD, there is, I think caffeine is something like 10 milligrams is the LD50, and a cup of coffee has 100 milligrams. I'm sorry, 100, 110 grams, a cup of coffee is 100 milligrams. So you could say, what is that, 100? 10? 10? Surely not. 10 cups of coffee. 10 grams. No, 10, 100 cups of coffee. If you could drink 100 cups of coffee really? at once, then... It would kill half, half the, people the people that drank that if they're yeah. average citizen. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's almost impossible to drink caffeine at a rate that would kill you, but... Nonetheless, it does, but, it, but know, it's possible. But it does have an LD fifty. Yeah, it, interesting. It does have a toxicity. But but also on the health benefits, it's it's important to point out too that what you're saying, I don't disagree with. If someone's drinking one, two, maybe three cups a day, if you're drinking five to ten cups of coffee a day, which a lot of people are, some people drink more than that. There there does there is some adverse effects. To Absolutely, that. mostly <laughs> related to sleep. I, like it's not real. I'm not sure that there's really any other. Okay, I mean, sleep's huge. Not, don't get me wrong. Well, yeah, but I have. Maybe this is unfounded, but I I I, I thought that seeing? it was not the best for your liver to liver? drink that much coffee. It could be. I'm, I, mean, I, I could be off. I don't know. Um, I know that there's you know kind of a diuretic effect. So mm-hmm. you know at a certain you got to be careful to not get dehydrated if you're yep. drinking that much coffee. Yep, and all that. But all things in moderation, right? Yep. Except for these things that the government decided are forbidden exactly um so you know alcohol what's the ld50 of alcohol um i don't know let's go go, go ahead and google it real quick while you're talking about mm-hmm. caffeine you know we can that's one type of drug uh is like stimulants too which caffeine is one adderall is a stimulant mm-hmm. adderall is a methamphetamine right it could be yeah i'm actually not sure um <clears throat> Well, 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 methamphetamine is another, another type of stimulant. So I don't know if Adderall is actually a methamphetamine. Now I'm exposing my ignorance. But uh, ecstasy, it's another, an another stimulant. Uh, I'm looking it up. It's not the same as meth, but chemically speaking, the difference is small. Mm-hmm. It is an, is, it's in the amphetamine family. Adderall is? Adderall is in the okay. amphetamine. Yeah. yeah. So different similarities and differences and important ones for sure. You find it there, Lincoln? Do you find the LD50 on alcohol? LD50 on alcohol? I have it here. Um, well, it's the equivalent to 13 shots, but what's the? that's where these infographics would be more helpful if they just gave me the actual numbers. <laughs> shots of what? Does it say? 40% ABV. 13 shots of 40% bourbon, for example. That's 80 proof, right? Mm-hmm. 80 proof, yeah. Will kill half the people that do it? Yes, that's my understanding. 
That's a lot lower than I thought. Wow. Well, but keep in mind, too, that you'd have to consume that in pretty short order to make that, yeah. you know. So if you spread that out over 20 minutes, then you've lost that kind of. But point is, it's dangerous. Point is, it's pretty dangerous. And I, I only bring, I brought the LD50 up because we were also talking about cannabis, and cannabis doesn't have an LD50. Right. There doesn't, there's no known toxicity No one dies from cannabis overdose. It's impossible. Yeah. Somebody so said, far, anyway. It's, um, and, you know, it's interesting because they've actually learned how to um, take the active, psychoactive ingredient in cannabis, which is THC, and they've learned to um, kind of distill that down to 99% pure, right? And so that's just like pure THC, whereas, you know, a, a joint might have 15 to 20% THC. Yeah. And then this stuff has like 99%. And to my knowledge, nobody's even like, there's not even a, a toxicity. No, like, I mean, people overdose, but that means they go sleep it off and then they get up and right. <laughs> like, like, oh, don't do that again. <laughs> so there is an overdose. It's just not lethal. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, I'm going to go lay on the couch for a day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, your point stands with alcohol, man. It, it's, it's super dangerous. It's, it's yes, there's a lot of negative indications when it, it really comes to is. the conversation about alcohol. Well, and this is, and a lot of people have died from um, Tylenol too because they are messed up on alcohol and then the next day they have a headache or something, they pop a whole bunch of Tylenol and the Tylenol, or maybe if it's not even the next day, but then the Tylenol reacts with the alcohol and bam, it's mm-hmm. lights out. You're dead. 150 people a year. Acetaminophen poisoning. A 150 people a year? Yeah. What's acetaminophen? That's, that's the, when Tylenol interacts with that's just with just alcohol or what? Time Magazine reported that five well five hundred people a year die from overdosing on acetaminophen. Um, One hundred fifty die from acetaminophen poisoning. I don't know what the I difference see. is between those two. Interesting. But yeah, it's by far you know certainly more people than die from say cannabis, for example. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. <laughs> So there are dangerous compounds that we're talking about, and then there's yes. not dangerous compounds. Exactly. The dangerous ones, um, we talked about the dopaminergic ones. They have an addictive quality to them. They have actual health risks with overuse. Mm. Um, they can cause your heart to stop at mm-hmm. some level. You know, all those things, it's a risk. We've talked about alcohol and its risk. Mm-hmm. We've talked about cannabis not really having a risk. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the pros that you see? Like what what... Uh, what are the positive, you know, why should we be having this conversation in addition to not just not locking people up, which I agree with, what are yeah. some of the other positive indications or positive benefits that you would like to kind of with talk with about? With, say, with drugs? Well, in ge- yeah, any Yeah, in general? Well, I mean, I think... Um, what are you curious about? I think... Um, there's two things that come to mind offhand, psychedelics and cannabis. Now, is technically, is cannabis technically considered a psychedelic or no? No, it's not no. considered one of the classical. It's not strong enough usually to have that kind of So the only reason that we bring experience. up cannabis in a conversation about, air quote, drugs anyway is because that's what we've been taught. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's embarrassing. Because we don't really bring up caffeine no. In, in my mind... Well, you never thought of sugar as a drug. I know. I'm still not sure that I do. Like, tell me about that. Like, do you... Yeah, what, what and then I want to I wanna get to... You were going to get back to that. When is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right here. Food of the gods. The search for the original tree of knowledge. A radical history of plants, drugs, and hum, human evolution. 
here's just as an observation. I think this is one of the reasons, too, why maybe as evangelicals we don't um, maybe have stayed away from some of this stuff is because you know, here's a good example. Here's a here's a book called Food of the Food of the Gods. The second half of it is more about the science of different drugs, where they came from, how it works, culturally, where they're popular, where they're not, all the, all this type of thing. But the first half of it was about using drugs and spirituality and evolution, and like it ties in sometimes. And so, I don't have a problem reading a book like this. Th- this book, I, I don't necessarily recommend this book. It's fine if you get it. Just focus on the second half. Um, but what I like about How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan is because this is, you know, he he kind of stays in the lane. Like this, this book is written for a very specific purpose. It's what the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. And he just hits the nail on the head. This book here gets into some other stuff. Like if, for example, you wouldn't um, agree with natural evolution, say, then you might shy away from this book. I guess I I'm, I understand that as an argument if people just want to stay away from it. I just I know about evolution, so I don't care when I read it in here. I don't agree with it like he would be positing it. Um, but I'm but it doesn't mean he doesn't have good things to say, you know, about some other things. Sure. So that's that's an example. Um, <clears throat> sugar abuse is the world's least discussed and most widespread addiction. It is one of the hardest of all habits to kick. As with all stimulants, ingestion of sugar is followed by a brief euphoric rush, which is itself followed by depression and guilt. Sugar addiction rarely occurs alone as a syndrome. Mixed addictions, addictions, for example, sugar and caffeine, are more common. Sugar abuse is often involved in the development of serious alcohol abuse. An absolute correlation has been shown between high sugar consumption and high alcohol intake outside meals. After alcohol and tobacco, sugar is the most damaging, addictive substance consumed by human beings. You know, it's funny to hear you read that. Nothing about what you just read surprised me. It all resonated with me. I've gone off of sugar. I know how bad it is. I know how addicted I was and probably am to sugar. But yes, yes it didn't, the penny didn't drop for me until you just read that now. The distortion and dehumanizing of human institutions and human lives caused by crack cocaine today is nothing compared with what the European desire for sugar did in the 17th and 18th centuries. One may argue that something approaching slave labor is typical of the early stages with cocaine production, but the difference is that it is not slavery sanctioned by medacious popes and openly pursued by corrupt but legitimate governments. A further difference must be noted. Brutal as it is, the modern drug trade is not involved in anything resembling the wholesale kidnapping, transporting, and mass murder of huge populations as was done to further the process of sugar production. Wow. That's an indictment. Yeah, it's an indictment. Um, So, yeah, that's the bit about about sugar. Um, You know, what? uh, where do I... Where where am I interested in, and which drugs am I interested in? Um, in their promise, yeah, in their promise, um, cannabis for sure, and psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for those maybe interested or don't know, what what psychedelics is a group of drugs. I don't know how to define it, but it would include um, well LSD. LSD is probably the most popular psychedelic, wouldn't you think? Mm-hmm. Um, Although psilocybin, so psilocybin comes from 
uh, a mushroom. And so like on this book here, Food of the Gods, it has the cover art has some mushrooms on it. That's because in these uh, particular types of mushrooms is a compound or a substance or whatever it is called psilocybin, right? um, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. Uh, DMT is psychedelic. Um, Ayahuasca, mescaline. Ayahuasca, mescaline. Yeah. There's one called... uh, well, no, that's DMT, right? Is DMT the same as 5-MeO-DMT? There's two Are they specific two, two, parts two, to it. Okay. But, but I think ayahuasca is in the same family. Yeah. So those are all psychedelics. And the thing to point out with psychedelics, I assume this is where it gets the name, is it for the most part, it mostly just has an effect on your mind for a short period of time. Yeah, there's kind of an... I think it can... And again, I've not experienced this, but what I've read um, and heard people talk about, there's kind of an ecstatic portion of the experience, Mm -hmm. but there's this kind of disconnecting from reality to a certain extent. And one of the the kind of almost universal kind of things that people say about these experiences when they have a psychedelic experience of sufficient strength is that their own ego, their perception of their self dropped away and it was disintegrated and, and maybe integrated into their perception of reality more, yes. more generally. So it, it has this pretty wild effect on your perception for, you know, anywhere from 10 minutes to 12 hours, depending on which psychedelic you're talking about. Yeah. It depends uh, on how hard it is. Um, and, and obviously this, this book is all about that, uh, but I wanted to point out something. It's the science behind that. Um yeah, let's see here. Oh, fascinating fact. Did you know that the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous mm-hmm. was using LSD to treat alcoholism? Um, it was very, it was working. Mm-hmm. It was very successful. Mm-hmm. That got shut down um, due to the unpopularity at the time. Yeah, well, that was part of that moral panic in the 60s and 70s about, yeah. you know, the whole youth culture, you know, they're coming up, they're using these drugs we've not had a chance to use. It's making them not want to fight our wars. Like, yes, they think they understand something about reality that we don't. Like, it's very scary. You know, it's just kind of a moral panic set in. Yes. Yeah. And this is, um, so this is, this is kind of the science behind how psychedelics work. It's this thing in our brain called the default mode network. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's this part of our brain basically that, well, here, here, here's what it is. So, um, they discover the place where our minds go to wonder, to daydream, ruminate, travel in time, reflect on ourselves and worry. It may be through these very structures that the stream of our consciousness flows. And then they go on to say the reason why, um, psychedelics can help with depression is because essentially it, shuts that off for a period of time and you sort of lose, it's what you said, you you sort of lose your ego for a little bit. The best way that, um, I believe this is a thought from Michael Pollan, and it's the best visual um, that I've heard on this is, now I've heard this years and years ago as it relates to pornography, that pornography can create these certain pathways in your brain. And the more you view or involved with porn, the more those pathways get rutted in, which 
makes you want to view or use porn even more, which makes those ruts even deeper. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's these things in our pathways in our brain. Um, and if you picture sort of like a kind of a, 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 a snow covered hill with sleds coming over the hill towards you, you know, the first few sleds are just coming over and they make some tracks in the snow and then other sleds are coming over and they're kind of slipping into those tracks. Mm-hmm. That's just how it's going to work. And then the more sleds that come over, you know, they, you, you eventually kind of stop creating new trails because the sleds that have come over are just popping in the trails that already exist and causing those trails in the snow to be even deeper. Creates these deeper groups. A really strong psychedelic experience, say on psilocybin or LSD, can help to groom the snow. Mm-hmm. Give and that fresh. Give that fresh. It's like, um, like in what do they call those things on the ski slopes? Those groomers. What's the term for that? Those things that come out at night and groom the snow. Snow groomer. I forgot what it's called. It's like it's it's what those things do. That's what psychedelics can do for your mind. Right. Um, and it does it in the process of sort of releasing yourself from you and from your ego for you know. 30 minutes to 12 hours, whatever, um, and get you out of this loop. Because what can happen with depression is um, you get caught in this loop where you actually think of yourself too much. Like you think of yourself and, and, and you can get into this downward negative spiral. It doesn't mean you need to like, come on, man, get a hold of yourself, get control of yourself, wake up, let's go. Like that's not... I think probably everyone that struggles with real depression, they're all, they grab a hold of themselves. They they quit it like they they're not trying to be in this you know downward spiral. They right. they quit it if they could. They, they don't enjoy being there, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes they need some help. Right, and it seems like the um, it seems like you know this kind of new frontier of psychedelic research is showing some promise to help with those issues. It's crazy how much success that these early trials are having. You know, what's been unprecedented to look back on is to see in the 40s and 50s, there was tremendous amounts of research being done with psychedelics in the U.S. and in Europe um, before the youth, you know, people kind of said, well, the drugs, you know, like LSD were created in a laboratory and then they escaped the lab essentially and became a part of the popular culture. It's like, no, they were... There was this uh, guy named Timothy Leary that yeah. basically threw the drugs over the laboratory wall. that didn't leak out. You know, he was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he threw it. But, that's a pretty good uh, way of putting it. Um, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, you know, since that moral panic that ensued and they locked down the research, it's like that's one of the only times in history that I'm aware of that we had really promising studies that just got stopped because yeah. the substance in question had too much kind of political and cultural fear around it. Yeah. It's kind of crazy Um, because they were already then treating people who were addicted. Like there was a lot of um, addiction treatment work being done. And back to the early, I say early trials, the modern day trials that are happening at like say Johns Hopkins, they're seeing more than 50% success rates to cure addictions to like alcohol and smoking and stuff like that. Like that's huge. Like there's no other program that I'm aware of that has anything. And of course, this is really early stage. Like there's a lot of testing to do yet. So, you know, buyer beware, but there's some really early promise and really great promise to the treatments there. Yeah, there is. I mean, and, 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 you know, I hear your, your point about it's, 
early stages in testing, but you're right on. Like we were doing this in the forties. We were doing this in the fifties. We were doing this in the sixties. We were testing then, dude, we have the data. We're, we're just not, we're not doing it because we don't, I don't, it's either because we don't know how to tax it. We don't know how to distribute it. We don't know how to, but I can't think that's really the thing. Um, or it's just that if someone would stand up and put a motion out there to legalize some of the stuff that, the American populace wouldn't understand it and there would just be a backlash politically. Like I suspect that's probably a bigger reason than any. It kind of goes back to there's no real motivation for people to take risks. So no politician's going to stand up in Congress and say, hey, I want to fund LSD research. Right. right. It's because you're going to have 40% of your constituents are going to freak out. Yep. Um, so there's no real motivation there. You know, there has to be some other. And that's why a lot of the early um, kind of testing that we're doing, even with the very limited amount, with the couple handful of universities that are testing uh, these things, um, it's mostly psilocybin, which is a naturally occurring compound from a mushroom, yeah. as opposed to LSD, because, you know, part of that is like Congress people, I don't mean to be rude, but they probably don't know what psilocybin is, you know? So it's like a little easier to just go, let's fund this little research study, figure out how it helps. hundred percent. And then, you know, cause if you'd say, Hey, we're funding LSD, you know, here we go. Going back to the sixties. You yep. know, I hate to be like an okay boomer moment, but like, you know, that's what would happen. And like, yes. you know, you'd have that yep. meltdown in Congress. And totally. Moral panic ensues and all that. Yeah. So. Well, you're right about that. I think Pollan talks about that in his book too. So you're a hundred percent right there. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very interested. In, I'm very fascinated by psychedelics in general, uh, the benefits. Um, I I couldn't find. <clears throat> I actually thought it was in this book, but I think it was it was um, uh, a study or an article that I read somewhere outside of this book where there was a girl that um, oh, I'm gonna mess this up. There was a girl that basically she got like way more LSD than she should have. I, I want to, I feel like I texted you. Do you remember this? It was like a lot more, like it was more than 10 times the LSD she should have gotten. I like it was like a ridiculous amount of LSD. Um, and because it doesn't take much and, uh, she got super, she went on a really hard trip, but she was fine. Right. Same thing with psilocybin. Someone one time accidentally, they, this was in a study. This was not someone taking it themselves, but they messed it up in the lab or whatever. I mean, this thing can happen. And someone just got blitzed on psilocybin. Hard trip. Fine. Yeah. No long term no consequences. There's no real toxicity to it. No. The biggest risk is if your mind and your ego are disintegrated. You know, your ego serves a purpose and it's to keep you from running out in front of a bus or something stupid, right? Yeah. Jumping off a roof or something. Um, so when your ego is dissolved and you're just out and about, there's some risks to that. And so certainly yes. stories of that in the sixties, you know, yes. so with psychedelics, those are some of the risks that people encountered mm, and good point. You had some people jumping out of windows and doing stupid stuff, you know, and it's like, yep. that was part of what fueled that moral panic. Um, but it turns out that if you have the right set and the right setting, like mm -hmm. if you are set up with people who love you and support you, or there's a therapeutic, therapeutic environment that mm -hmm. you can experience those drugs, even in pretty high doses. And, yeah. and it's all, you know, it can be a very positive thing. Yeah. You know, so. for sure. On the kind of the terror of losing your ego, I believe it is the one from the frog is, I think that's five MEO DMT. Mm -hmm. That's right. It comes from frogs. That sound right. Yeah. They, I wonder who figured this out. Like, here, hey, there's a frog. He's got some slime on him. 
You know what I mean? You take that it's, slime off and you smoke it. Like how yeah, do you, how? it's like the the <laughs> venom from this fang of this frog that you not only have to squeeze out, but then you smoke it. <laughs> like who comes up with this stuff? Like yeah, and like, and you can milk the frog. By the way, you props, don't have to kill the frog. Props to humanity so, for figuring that out. <laughs> I know, but apparently that one's like a twenty or thirty minute trip, and it's like being strapped to a rocket. Yeah, uh, for and and throwing up's very common with that one. And it's just like terrorizing because your ego just disintegrates. Um, apparently, it's worth it. You know, I don't know. It sounds a little scary to me, but but to, um, in April, the closest like, <clears throat> bless you. Um, you know, so obviously, re, you know, you know this, but recently we we had to kind of manage a couple of our family company into bankruptcy mm-hmm. and very difficult and. Um, in April, that was like, you know, a month to six weeks after some of that. And um, it was like long enough that I'm starting to process it. And there was a couple weeks there in April where, yeah, I went through a real difficult stretch because it was like, who am I? What do, what do I do? Like, what what is what is my identity? What like, am I on the earth for? You know what I mean? Like, because sure. for so long it was tied into here's your purpose and here's what you do. And there's kind of your field to tend and, you know, that type of a thing just gone. Wow, and you had grown up into that. Yeah. Like grew- you never really had another Yeah. independent identity. No. Wow, I, I didn't think of that. From a I Dude. grew up in it like my first memories are tied to this little um LLC. At the time it was a C Corp, you know? Mm-hmm. Um tied to this little um venture, business venture, you know? Um yeah, from a very young age and and just it was definitely such a part of me and then poof, it's gone. And it was this weird, like, who am I feeling? Like, feeling like a loss. Like, it was, I'm having a hard time explaining it, but it felt like, you know how when there's, um, I think to be in infinity must be terrifying. Because, like, right now, here you are. Here's the laptop. Here's the table. There you are. It's 6.19 p.m. You know, it's like there's there's data points. But when you have no data point, it's kind of terrifying. Mm-hmm. And and that's why I think like if hell is nothing more than being separated from God for infinity, so that chaotic. is terrifying. What, what, how did you tie it together more closely for me? What you went through in April with this, like, I don't think I followed you there. Like, with the, uh, with the psychedelics? Well, with that, <laughs> that terror, that like, I didn't follow quite. So, what I went through in April was just a very, just a short stretch had, of, of wondering a, who am I, what am I about? Almost disassociative yeah, experience very. where it was like disorienting enough that it almost felt like you were coming apart. Yes. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. That's exactly what it felt like. And there was no drugs involved. I got you. You know what I mean? Totally. It was no. just like this reorienting of so much of what I grew up with, what I knew, how my life was structured was just gone i'm with you now and all of a sudden it's like there's there's just it felt like i stepped into like space a little bit so Mm -hmm. anyhow my point was uh, the psychedelics will take you on that that's very common except Mm -hmm. to probably the 10th degree right but it doesn't last for a couple weeks thankfully one of the models that is was helpful for me to kind of get my head around at least hearing people's description of it was that if indeed reality is extremely complex and we only perceive 
that amount of reality that we like our what part of our brain's job is to reduce reality down to what we can focus on and perceive like mm-hmm. there's so much data there like if i dove into you know the molecular substructure of this table and i you know dove into the subatomic particle particles like there's just an incredible amount of data like it's way too much for me to perceive yes and the various energies that you know are emanating from our bodies and the various you know, all everything that's going on in the world at any given time, like all of the potential that exists, like it's way too much for us to perceive. And we would just shut down our ego. Like a, it's an important part of our personality is to kind of just perceive that which we can kind of structure. And then out of all of those things, we, we look at one, we reduce it down to the thing we're looking at. Yes. And so that's an important process, but it can when we get into these disruptive loops of thought, it can be too limiting for us because 80% or more of our life is lived kind of unconsciously. Like you don't yep. think about when you get into the car, you don't think, okay, now I got to put the key in the ignition. Now I got to push the right. clutch. Now I got to push. The... It's like, that's all subconscious. Like you just get up, you go to work and you've never thought at all about how to drive or where to go. Right. Yes. 80% of that is just totally in your subconscious. So it's like, because you operate subconsciously, these, these patterns of thinking and behavior kind of rule your life to a large degree. Yes. And until you stop looking at the things you're looking at now and look at something else and pay attention to something else, that subconscious life that you're living is going to continue down the path it's on. That's right. It's hard for it to, to it's hard to make significant changes in that. That's right. That's kind of what it you were talking disruption. about. It needs some kind of major yep. disruption, dysregulation to, in order for you to be, okay, I'm going to name the subconscious forces and factors that are influencing my life to the mm-hmm. best that I can. Like, that's a crazy thing to even try to do because yeah. it's like, I don't even know. I'm not aware enough of all the things. But as you become more aware, but it's like then you take a chemical compound of some kind that lets your brain kind of open up its perception a little bit, maybe stop restricting the perception down to the one thing you're looking at and the one way that you view yourself, and it's opening it up to more of the potential that actually exists maybe. Yes. Right. So... It's like that limbic region of your brain where's where's a lot of that where that a lot of that limiting of reality down into what it is that you can focus on. It's yes. Like that o- seems to open up somehow. Yep. And and let more information in. So it's like while at the same time disconnecting you from how you perceive yourself in your ego. So if your yes. ego is what disconnects you from well, it, you know, it's like Jesus was pretty clear about the fact that living out of your ego disconnects you from the father and his, and his kingdom and his presence. Like you you don't perceive his presence when you're living out of ego. It's like Mm -hmm. you have to die to yourself. You have to, you know, it's like, that's a fundamental part of living in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. But it's, and so it's like that ego disconnects us, builds walls, blocks our perception. It's necessary. It keeps us safe, you know, but then it becomes too you know, tyrannical at some level. Yes. And if we're not careful and if we don't like, a profound religious experience can cause our ego to, we can kind of drop our ego. Like, I, I feel like the experience that I had two, a little over two years ago when I had encountered Jesus Christ in this really profound way that started me on this journey toward, you know, that's changed my life. Like, that was uh, this kind of mystical experience that I can't fully describe to you. And I don't know exactly what. Like, I can't point to this is precisely what occasioned that mystical experience. But that mystical experience did have 
long-term beneficial experiences for me as I lived out the new things that I was paying attention to on the other side of that mystical experience. So one of the things that was, you know, is interesting about psychedelics is that it does very reliably occasion a mystical experience. It's a, it's like almost scientifically reliable. Like yes. it's just, you know, it occasions this kind of mystical experience that disrupts people's perception mm-hmm. of their ego and of reality and all of that. And it seems to have really profound positive indicators for addiction and fear, anxiety, Mm -hmm. Um, like the work that Pollen has written about when it comes to treating um, people with just intractable anxiety around um, Mm -hmm. their cancer and disease and stuff like that. It's like they they seem to kind of draw, like all of a sudden they're not afraid anymore. That's right. And, And like I actually, it's interesting to learn about these things as I live out my faith. It's like, there's some kind of parallels to like I had this this experience where I became more aware of the love of the divine and I lived out of that energy and I my ego was dissolved and I, I placed my aim on Christ and I began to live out of that new awareness, that new energy, that new identity. And so maybe on a, if you back all the way down to just, you know, a fairly small, let's just say you're, you can, you have someone who's struggling with um, an addiction to alcohol that's just intractable and it's destroying their life. If you can give them, reliably give them a therapy where in one or two sessions you can occasion a mystical experience and you can guide them in such a way that's therapeutic that then makes them no longer addicted to alcohol. It's mm-hmm. like they can they they have this persistent long-term benefit. It seems to me like that's something we should be very interested in. And there's there's like almost no negative side effects. Yeah. I mean the fact that we're the fact that it's not already mainstream is mind-boggling to me. It really is. I don't understand that. By the way, here's some more water if you want it. Thank you. Um <clears throat> you know you you just mentioned something. This is a little bit of a sidebar, but um the last time you were on you were about to launch your blog, I think. Yeah. And you did launch it. I did. How's that we going? Did. It's actually going really well. Good. I mean, it's funny because my friend Jamie um, told me that if I start writing every week, that that's when I should be prepared to face the resistance, the resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about in The War of Art, you know, the resistance that keeps creatives from creating. Um, and I've faced a little bit of that. Like, I've... You know, we kind of decided we're going to publish once a week, which is... Okay, is that kind of the... Yeah, the, which the, is becoming um, harder than sure. I expected. <laughs> um, so. but, uh, but, you know, that wasn't just any blog. I mean, you guys were getting pretty personal there and sharing you guys a story, which uh, we talked about in your last podcast. But um, have you gotten some feedback? Has it... How, have, How's the feedback been? Yeah, so have? it's been it's been out for about a month now. The blog has, um, and I didn't really know what to expect. I mean, we got like more than eleven thousand views, like in the first month, which was significantly more than I kind of expected. I guess. That's I mean, I had really. I mean, if it had been two thousand or five thousand, I didn't really know. You know? Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, clear, and it's like twenty three different countries, so people clearly are sharing it with that's people, cool. and that's cool. So it's fun to know that something you've made is out there. Yeah. And that people are sharing it with each other. Um, mm-hmm. We do get positive feedback. Um, only one negative feedback, mm-hmm. um, but I kind of expected that. Yeah. But hugely positive. Um, and That's it's great. been interesting to hear the positive feedback from the corners of the world you didn't expect it. Mm. Hmm. That's cool. I'm, I'm glad you got negative feedback. 
hopefully get more because that means you're saying something. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, back to LSD, this is one thing that I don't think it popped up a lot in that book, but I've, I've been cu- very curious about is, I mean, it might be, it's probably safe to say, I haven't pre-thought this, so I'm, I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully. It's probably safe to say we wouldn't have our current technological environment without psychedelics. Oh, absolutely. You're talking about the influence that psychedelics had in the development of art and technology through the 60s, 70s, 80s? Yeah. Oh. I mean, Apple wouldn't be the same without LSD. I can promise you that. Absolutely. No. So what do you think? What do you think? Because here's why I'm curious is you're mentioning how effective psychedelics can be on treating something like an addiction to alcohol. Okay, it's super effective with that. It's also very effective with depression. Um, also, it's uh, there's stories in there too of like someone who is just self-consumed, kind of my way or the highway, using others, you know, at their disposal. Just very kind of self-centered and you know, kind of aggressive and selfish and hurtful to others. Um, those there's those people have some changes of hearts after they take a good solid trip. So it's not just depression. It's not just alcoholism. It's personality, too, to some level. Like, they see love in a way that affects them going forward. It's almost universal that even people who are stout materialists, yeah. people who have no room, Michael Pollan included, no room for the metaphysical, yes. no room for the transcendent, no room for the supernatural at all, take one of these and they say, almost universally, they say something like, there's, there's something out there. And it's guiding, they describe something that, like God, Mm -hmm. and they say that this force, being, whatever, is defined by and is love. Exactly. So the question is, like, are they actually encountering God in some sense? Like, I wonder that too. Yeah. But uh, so let's talk about that. But where I was going was Steve Jobs, tech. Oh, and this idea that... um, and and this is something I think it's it's very possible, maybe has gone unnoticed, but if it's effective, but we're not using it, is it possible that we are being unfair to ourselves and society by exposing ourselves to particular um, drugs or substances or ways of life or new environments? And what I mean by that is, say, alcohol, tobacco, um, Technology, you know, we have things in 2020 that they would have thought was crazy in the 70s, you know, or certainly 1910, you know, it's a different life right now. Um, We're exposed to certain things, and maybe everything is here on this earth that we need. But when we get, when there's an undue attention or consumption put on some things on this earth, aka uh, alcohol, but we say no to some of these other things that are on our, the earth when they're supposed to work together. And when you use it all together and properly and wisely and for God's glory, it works. But when you cut out certain things and now you have more depression from technology, you have more depression from Instagram, more depression from Facebook, isolation, um, you know, all of these types of things, you have more depression and more negative experiences from this but you can't utilize some other things that are here on this earth that were there for your proper utilization that, man, now you're really in a jam. Yeah. And 
totally. It, it's this imbalance almost. And it's kind of furthered by the fact that we have this real bias towards that, which we can observe and measure and understand. So we like stuff that we create, like medicine and, you know, drugs, synthetic drugs that pharmaceuticals create. Like, we're those all are, good at that, fine. like, yeah. all the way, you know. Um, and don't even get me started on SSRIs, you know, in the modern class of, you know, depression, anxiety, medicine. Like, it's there's a lot of pain that comes from, you know, people, like, they don't work all that well like for a lot of people. Um, there's a lot of societal costs and, and all that, a lot of human costs. But anyway, so we, we like the things that we make, but we kind of mistrust the, the simple things like, say, you know, maybe God gave us psilocybin um, for a reason. Maybe he gave us cannabis for a reason. Maybe he gave us, you know, the coca leaf for a reason. And, you know, maybe we ought to use that in a holistic way that that balances our health and our I agree our you know the well-being of our society yeah i totally agree and by the way on prescription drugs you want to guess how many people die from that every year because we already established that people die in 2018 67,300 people died from illegal drugs but also including prescription opioids which are legal so the high number is 67,300 right so you want to guess how many people die from prescription drugs every year in america 128,000 <laughs> A hundred and twenty-eight thousand, almost exactly double what people die from. Well, it's probably more like triple or quadruple what people die from for um, for from illegal drugs. Yeah, the most common or the most deadly prescription drugs. Number one, painkillers. So like oxycontin, Vicodin, fentanyl, etc. Uh, number two, methadone. That's technically a, uh, a painkiller, but it's, it's most often used to get people off of heroin. Um, uh, and then like. Tranquilizer drugs, drugs like Xanax, Librium, Valium, so forth. And then number four is um, stimulants for ADD, which, dude, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is what's tough because any one of these things could have its own podcast, but ADD like Ritalin and so forth. And then antibiotic steroids, which, you know, people are, I don't feel like that one's that common, but sometimes they're, they're prescribing them for certain things, which obviously most people know steroids is like people are trying to get jacked up and they're using them for those. But, but, but steroids, anabolic steroids is a prescription for certain right. things. Anti-inflammatory, so, anti-inflammatory yeah. stuff. Yep. So people are dying from, from that stuff. Um, that's where I guess, that's where I guess when you look at this stats, like it, it's, it, it becomes overwhelming because it's like the, the science, the statistics are saying one thing, but then our our reality in Western America here with the politics and everything is just, this isn't even on most people's radar. No. And the church is complicit in like just shoving it under the rug and kind of, yeah. and helping to demonize, frankly, yeah. the compounds that could be useful and helping to prop up the systems that systemically um, hurt, you know, vulnerable populations. Yeah. So I agree. Yeah, you're right about that. Um, but yeah, just LSD. Um, I mean, there are so many people that microdose now in Silicon Valley in the tech community, which is just taking a small amount of either LSD or like psilocybin every day. Mm-hmm. As a productivity, creativity thing. Yeah. Yeah. I've read a bit about that. And you're right. Like our art that we have, like the music that we have today, vastly shaped by LSD um, yeah. coming out of the 60s for sure. Um, the products that we have, especially computer-related technology products, 
a lot of that. You know, it's, um, I was just listening to, um, you're talking about the technological revolution and, and what drives all of that. It's like, it's interesting to think about some of our best advances in computing power, like, you know, the thing that drives Moore's law to keep, you know, Moore's law is like this computational power keeps getting more and more powerful and chip size keeps shrinking and all that. Um, but what drives a lot of that is our kind of desire to imagine, you know, new like create these new worlds for like video games and lifelike representations of video games and this alternate reality and AI and virtual reality and augmented reality and all that. Like a lot of our really powerful technology development is going into those things. Like we, we really, it seems like we as a people really want to see into that, you know, and kind of, um, well, it seems like we want to kind of picture ourselves with a new set of tools or a new set of limitations or new opportunities that we don't, you know, so we want to picture and see how it goes for ourselves in that yes. new world. It's like, so we develop these technologies to help us do that. Yep. And it seems like maybe microdosing and, and some of the tools that they're using to help shape some of that, it, it's all very relevant to what, like, that's happening in Silicon Valley today. And yeah. And, uh, generally, is that a positive thing? Is it a negative thing? I think, uh, well, technology is never without a cost. But sure, the way that it's unfolded over the last 250 years, it seems like it's certainly lifted us out of a lot of Yes, suffering. it has. And, and that's even a little, I mean, you think about that for a second. Like, it's common knowledge. Steve Jobs, you know, did a lot of LSD in his day. All right. Um, these people in the tech communities, they're, they're using psychedelics heavily. Let's Mm -hmm. just say that's a fair statement. Um, I don't, I can't recall when the last time was that Google or Apple or Microsoft was, um, that there was tanks that rolled up in there, busted down doors, dragged people out and threw them in prison. But that happens over and over again with cannabis. Mm -hmm. And no matter where you kind of fall in this whole drug thing, LSD is going to, you should handle LSD with more caution than cannabis. Uh, yes. You should handle psilocybin with a little bit more caution than cannabis. Yes. So of all the things we're talking about here, cannabis is the least, like that's the one where you, if you had to, you could probably handle it the least care and be fine. Right. And yet that's the one where we lo- have locked up so many people, man. Mm-hmm. So many people in this country. I think one of the, I predict that one of the upsides that's going to come out of this downturn that we're in is that cannabis legalization will be federal and, well, will be, it'll be legalized at the federal level, I predict, much more quickly than normal because of the potential for tax revenue and, hmm. you know, to help counter some of the costs that we've incurred. Do you think it's possible for cannabis to become legal under the Trump administration? Because for sure we're going to have mm-hmm. another four years, right? I mean, there's no um, way. <laughs> yeah, likely. I, um, well, it, I used to think for sure um, anything's possible with, with coronavirus, but um, yeah, I think so. I think so too. Um, I think the, I don't think this is a reflection on whether they're right or wrong or which side I'm on, but but the right side, the the... Republicans are changing their tune a little bit with some of these things. Mm-hmm. Newt Gingrich is coming out now and saying that some of the stuff is just bull with yeah. these drug laws and everything. Um, what are your? What, well, go ahead. I what do you right. think the the people who are still pro, like 
well, the the people who are behind the kind of keep cannabis illegal camp, what is it that, what are their best arguments? Yeah, man. I mean, their best arguments. I thought where you were going was was why would they... Well, that's a, maybe helpful be, to Because I think too. the why is... here. There's this principle that I don't know what it is, but there's something about the human nature. When Lincoln does something that I don't like, and then he's not here, and I talk with you about how I didn't like when Lincoln did that, right? If you and I are kind of not above gossip, there's something that feels good about that. We kind of have this connection. Like I tell you something about what, you know, ticked me off about what Lincoln did or something that he, that I just didn't like or whatever. And I can speak negatively about Lincoln behind his back with you. And it, it triggers something. I'll bet it actually triggers a piece of our brain, that dopamine thing or whatever. There's this little hit. That's why gossip is so rampant. It's, it's um, basically shameful. Like, it's not respectful at all. Mm-hmm. If I have something I want to say negative about Lincoln, I need to say that to his face. I don't right. need to say it to you behind closed doors. Right. Whatever that principle is, that principle applies with cannabis. Because to the average person that's going to sit on that side of the table, if I make a comment about in sort of a negative connotation about cannabis or, you know, marijuana or the people that use it or hippies on drugs or, you know, pot smokers. In this country, I feel like the average person sitting over there is going to resonate with that a little bit. It's going to make us both feel a little bit good because it's you and I against something else. We feel kind of smug. We feel a little bit smug. Mm -hmm. I think at some point it reaches a tipping point and that goes away and then we feel silly. Um, and I think it's also something about like being on the, honestly, I think it's something also about being on the right side of history. Like at some point you reach a tipping point then you try to say something like that. But right now it'd be kind of the same thing existed with alcohol at one point. Um, I mean, for crying out loud, we made alcohol in this country illegal and Mm -hmm. that didn't go very good. No. You know, so, so, but here we are dragging this thing out with cannabis for so long. So you asked why, why would I think that's, I think that's partly why, um, people would still have a negative view about cannabis. Um, I think probably the biggest reason though is uh, lack of knowledge. I think like when I, when I think about the like people listen to this podcast, there's going to be a fair amount of people who, well, there's going to be a certain element of people who just are opposed to anything that you would smoke recreationally, whether that's tobacco or cannabis or anything else. Right. So just the smoking aspect, there's a certain amount of amount of people who are against that. And I would say maybe more so in certain like Christian circles. Is that fair? Yeah, that's very so fair. So that's a, maybe a method of delivery thing. Um, but let's say that you, yeah. you took a, a, let's say you took a, a cannabis flower and you made butter with it. Mm-hmm. You infused it into butter. Um, and then you made a brownie with it or a cookie with it. Yep. And then you use that to treat, um, let's say, your joint pain or, you know, yep. something. There's, I, I would have to think that it's becoming harder and harder to find people who would truly object to that if they really understood that process and understood everything about it. Like if they, if they went to the field and they got a, 
you know, a clump of flour and they hung it upside down and dried it and then, you know, infused it in some butter and then made some cookies. And it's like, that's what I'm using instead of, let's say, oxycodone or some other, you know, drug, you know, that somebody's cooked up in a, in a pharmaceutical lab. It's like if somebody really looked at that, it would be, it seemed to me to be difficult to object to that. I a hundred percent agree. I would just, I would, I would posit two changes to that. I would say, um, they want to buy it. I think they want to buy it. I think they want to go to a pharmacy and buy it. So if you and I went out and picked a plant, did the distilling, did whatever we needed to do and put it in a pill and not a, not a brownie or cookie, because just you saying that it has a negative stigma to it. Okay. You know what I mean? Um, be, you're, you're, I follow your line of reasoning. Sure. You're right. I actually 100% agree with it. Yeah, yeah. I'm just taking it to the next level and saying, if you and I do that and we distill it down and we put it in a pill and then we take it down to CVS and it's, here's a cannabis pill and we sell that, right. that now you have mass acceptance. Now mm-hmm. you're, now it's, it's not crazy because it's out there with the natural hippies, natural remedy crap. You get to go into CVS, which people love to do in this country and buy a pill and take that pill. If you can do that, and people know it's 100% cannabis, nothing else added, now I think you've got an argument. Mm-hmm. Or if you can't go into CVS and buy it, um, if you distill it down, put it in butter, and still put it in a pill and take the pill, or put it in a dropper and take a dropper, now I think you've got it. Like if you can somehow bypass the cookies and the brownies, because I think they're still they're tied in a little bit too, um, now I think you've got, I mean, at some point you run out of reasons quick. Mm-hmm. You really do. It's just, yeah. I mean, we've, we're kind of far enough removed from the worst of the, what, the reefer madness that, you know, the propaganda that got people all scared of cannabis back in the 60s, 70s, whenever it was, going back all the way to the 20s, 30s. Um, like that reefer madness thing kind of has played its course. And now the current generation, like people your age and mine, like it's probably, I don't know what, how it splits out percentage wise, people who are cool with it and people who aren't, but it's, it's got to be a battle that the, if you and I, Patrick, jump in a car and drive through, we're in Nashville, right? So let's drive through a, um, let's drive through development in Mount Juliet. Let's swing by Hendersonville. Let's swing by the nations in West Nashville. Let's swing through Creve Hall. Let's swing through Franklin. And let's come back here. How many of those houses are people using cannabis already? Well, Franklin probably a little lower than the others, just because it's white evangelicals. But um, no, but all those all those are that I mentioned. That was my that was yeah. my point. Oh right, I got you. I did. I don't know the neighborhoods in Nashville all that well, so I, I didn't know if you'd thrown in some more one in three ones or not. Um, one in four. One in four. One in five, maybe one in four to one. In five. I, I think it's already way more prevalent than people think. Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah. No, I know there's a handful of guys that I know in our neighborhood that use cannabis. Um, and so, and so, yeah, I mean, we're in the, we're in Franklin, you know, yeah. so totally. You asked me what kind of drugs I was interested in. How about you? Well, I'm interested in the therapeutic benefit of psychedelics and I think it's insane that we've prohibited the study of them. I think that's just to your point, like that's just taking a, something really valuable off the table, something that could reduce suffering and cause people to live more full lives. Like I think that the church should absolutely be to the extent that it speaks into this kind of thing. It should be for, 
you know, studying these compounds and understanding them and using them to their optimal use, you know, mm-hmm. to maximal glory of God, mm-hmm. right? Helping mm-hmm. man live out, you know, a full and healthy and life to the best that they can. So yeah. if there's a tool that they can use to do that, great. Um, cannabis, I think that the church, you know, I think that over the next 20 years or so, there's going to be a lot of changes in the church. And I think that we'll look back and see that we were probably on the wrong side of cannabis. You know, I think that um, cannabis is something that, well, for a a church that's, um, you know, widely accepts sugar and widely accepts caffeine and even pretty widely accepts, almost universally accepts alcohol and and tobacco. Yeah. Um, for them to prohibit cannabis is zero makes zero sense. There's no logic there at all. Um, in fact, you, cannabis is probably safer than all of those except caffeine. It 100% is. Since we're talking about stats in this podcast, you want to guess how many people die from tobacco every year? Oh, it's got to be 480,000. That's a half a million people. 20,000 oh, shy of half a million people in the U.S., Wow. You know what we did to this country when about 70,000 people died? We shut it we down. shut it down. We sent everyone to their homes. We said, stay inside. We said, don't see each other. Shut down your business. We're going to send you money. If you do it right, we'll give you money for your business so you don't have to pay it back. But everyone needs to shut down. And in the meantime... 480,000 people a year die from tobacco use in this country. This is never talked about. Annualized January to April, you know what that is? 160,000 deaths. Wow. January to April 2020. Well, you guess how many people died January to April 2020 from COVID-19? Now, this number is way inflated because if you have any symptom at all, you're tagged as COVID, right? So if you... um, It would be feasible to think where... um, you get hit by a bus, you come in, and you're, you're coughing or you have a shortness of breath. You get tagged as COVID. Absolutely. But, but you died because you got hit by a bus. Okay, mm-hmm. that's counted in the 70,000, 79,500 deaths year to date for COVID. 79,500, okay, from COVID. That's an inflated number. We all know that. How many people died January to April of this year? 160,000. From tobacco. From tobacco. So... It's like putting a frog in water and putting it in the pan and turning the pan on. Why are we not talking about tobacco right now? Because we're used to it. Mm-hmm. We're used to people dying. We're used to 480,000 people dying a year from tobacco use. That's why we're not talking about it. We're used to it. It's politically correct. It's taxed. There's a lot of money that's spent to keep it around. Um, and so we all go about our lives smoking those cigarettes and half a million a year of us die every single year from from smoking tobacco it's crazy but but you know how many people die from smoking cannabis every year no one it's wild no one not a single person it's wild it is wild so i think the church you know the church doesn't like to look at this stuff generally or it hasn't over the last you know years but i think is i think it will as we as it becomes more relevant and as as the the church that's interested in seeing the real Jesus lifted up realizes mm-hmm. that it has to um, not look away from things that it doesn't understand, but it has to lean in and it has to yeah. lean in with curiosity and ask yeah. questions and listen and, um, you know, really get into that kind of yeah. unveiling some of the things that we've just kept under the rug. And I think that's going to be one area we look at and go, mm, I think we were on the wrong side of history. I think that the day will come. 
Okay, if I'm honest, I could be wrong here. I think the day will come when cannabis is accepted as alcohol. I agree. I don't think it's going to happen in the next five years. I don't think it's going to happen in the next 10 years because it's going to take some time. Because yeah. I, you know, like it wasn't, I grew up in a setting where alcohol wasn't a thing, still wasn't in that setting. So now for me, I, I never give a little bit of alcohol a second thought. You know what I mean? But, um, and a lot of, you know, and I think that's fairly common now. Um, I think there'll be a day when the same might be true for cannabis, but I, I, I could be wrong. I think, I think, so. I think it's going to depend on what happens politically, to be honest. And that's sort of embarrassing to say, because what I just said was how the church perceives cannabis is going to largely rely on the politics of it. That's not good. That's, that's not a good statement good. about the church's It's not a priorities. good statement at all. No, it's not. Um, what do you think about the, <clears throat> what are your thoughts though on like, we could say maybe the theology of cannabis. And what I mean by that is um, I think uh, for those people that would think it's crazy or at least not right, um, maybe the most common verses they would point to would be those verses about not being drunk Mm -hmm. and drunkenness. Mm -hmm. Um, Curious what your thoughts are on that. You know, one one thought I had is uh, I looked at all those verses because, because, and here's why, because, it's um it's legal in I don't know how many states now, but it's legal in several states at least, quite a few states. Um, but what's interesting about that though is like for for the people that live in those states, it's still illegal federally. So if the church is like, because if if it becomes legal and and here's why I'm interested in it and here's why I was kind of looking into it a little bit is because if it becomes legal in Tennessee tomorrow, right, just legal in the state. Well, as a member of the church and uh, of our church, and um, and and wanting to shepherd people the best I can and so forth, I should have some thoughts about it, right? Like, Absolutely. So now it's legal in Tennessee. Um, what I find a little bit ironic, though, with the legal discussion, is it's still illegal federally. So if you're in Colorado and you're, you know, a pastor to church there, um, you're gonna you're gonna have to face this because it's legal in your state. Um, but for those people that think it's wrong, you know, if it's illegal in your state, well, it's actually then technically wrong everywhere in America because it's still illegal federally. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyhow, um, if and when it becomes legal, say in Tennessee or any other state, and you happen to be at a at a church in those states, like you're going to have to think through this and, ha- and have some yeah. thoughts on it. And so you should and you should, yeah, it's a it's that's that's the role of being in spiritual leadership of whatever capacity, you know? So it's an honor to think through these things and, and, and kind of reason your way through them. Um, and, and certainly search the scriptures and, and ask for guidance from, from uh, the Holy spirit and so forth. But, um, you know, one of those things, I guess, just to point out is on those verses where it talks about not being drunk and, 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 um, and guarding against drunkenness, which I a hundred percent agree with. Those are, those verses belong in the Bible. They're not there by mistake. That's the word of the Lord. Like I, I agree a hundred percent. Um, but, uh, one of the thoughts with those verses is it's not just about drinking too much. It's about a drunkenness or a lewdness or a lifestyle or a lifestyle of partying, like a debauchery, like debauchery is probably a good word for it. Um, and so that's what that's what the Bible is telling us not to do, and for good reason. Because if that's going to be you and I's lifestyle, we're going to be about drunkenness and lewdness and partying and debauchery and having a good time and going out and staying out and putting ourselves at risk. 
Dude, it's only a matter of time before we're doing some dumb stuff that we're going to regret. I mean, that's just the way it works. So the, these 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 verses, like they are pointing us to how the human experience can best be lived. Like that's that the Bible gives us like the best human experience, right? Um, not more, not less. Like that is when we do things God's way. Like that is that is how life works best. Um, so I guess that's you know, one thought is, um, it's not just talk. Those, those verses, I don't think are talking specifically about an altered state of consciousness. They may, it may, that may be part of it, but for sure, what I know they're talking about is this partying and don't be a drunk and drunk, yeah, being a drunk and putting yourself in these bad situations. And like those, so that's kind of thing one. And then, um, and then kind of thing two is, you know, if we're against altered states of consciousness, well, we're not. I mean, we drink caffeine, we eat sugar, we well, that's drink where I was alcohol, going with it. we use pharmaceuticals, all of which alter our states of consciousness radically. Like, we're not against that. But you also, you even if you were, you go through an ultra state of consciousness every time you go to sleep and wake up. Mm-hmm. And while you're sleeping, you go through crazy, sometimes altered states of consciousness. So I agree with your assessment that when we really break it down, we're not against altered states of consciousness because of caffeine, because of alcohol, because of smoking a cigar, because of drugs, uh, prescription drugs, painkillers, um, all of those things. But, you know, you can't get to sleep without going through an altered state of consciousness. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on the theology? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think certainly as a, as a Christ follower, I think it behooves me to not... Like, I, I don't want to place any of my um, faith in anything other than, like, I don't want to pursue things that draw me away from the heart of God, right? I don't want to pursue things that draw me into patterns of fear or patterns of confusion or darkness or missing the mark or sin, which is the same thing as missing the mark. Um, so I think it absolutely, you know, I think don't be, don't be a drunk. Don't mm-hmm. be, you know, that's not consistent with living out this life that the life of the Christ man. Right. Um, so hundred percent, I, you know, I, I would, I can advocate for, you know, pro cannabis and I'm clearly pro cannabis, but I'm not pro being a stoner that Mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, and, and I want to be clear about what I mean there. Stoner being, you know, obviously, you know, a pejorative, someone who uses cannabis maybe to excess mm-hmm. um, and in such a way that, you know, it appears he lo- has lost motivation to to do other things, right? Just right. that kind of lazy. And interestingly enough, there is some some scientific evidence. There's not much, but there's a little bit of scientific evidence that shows that, that, that mo- the motivation and reward circuits in the brain can be hijacked when young people use cannabis. So mm. my counsel to my kids is stay away from cannabis for this, at least the length of time that you stay away from alcohol and tobacco. Okay. So wait until you're an adult on all fronts. 21 um, or? Yeah. Put I mean, an age uh, to it or? Um, so there's some evidence that um, for, bo- for males that, um, 25 is kind of a better age limit for cannabis. Yeah. Yep. Um, male being that male brains develop more slowly than, mm-hmm. than female. So, uh, yeah, I'm, that's kind of the guidance that I'm giving my kids is, yeah. um, at 25 for the guys, 21 for the girls. So, oh, okay. Yeah. But yeah, that's kind I of how agree I feel with that. about it. That's exactly how I feel about it too. Um, 
Yeah. So back sure. to the stoner thing. It's like, no, that's not consistent with living a life after Christ. Is It's like that, you know, I'm just going to sit around and seek my own pleasure, mm-hmm. whether I do that with cannabis or anything else, you know, TV or um, you name the pleasure that I'm seeking that keeps me from engaging my responsibilities. But mm-hmm. none of those are consistent with our living our best life following Christ, yeah. right? So yeah. there's nothing unique in cannabis that way. It's like... right. Nor, and, and frankly, you could say the same thing about sugar, you know? Right. It's like, um, it would be interesting to see what percent of the church is on mind-altering substances using, let's say, antidepressants, mm-hmm. right? Um, or, you know, what percent of the church is significantly, um, well, their lives are kind of held back in some way because of their addiction to food and sugar, right? You know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a big problem for the church. We, yeah. we like those are problems that we should grapple with, and we should figure out how to make disciples. How do we encourage each other to to live more true and to capture a more compelling vision for our future, mm-hmm. so that we're not drawn to these things that can short circuit those cycles of reward and, yes. and development along a more healthy path. Yeah, hundred percent. And um, and the other thing I would mention too is because it's probably apparent that you know, kind of where our personal opinions are on this. But, um, you know, I would I would also think in terms of if it's not helpful for you, don't touch it. Like, right. why would you go, why would you go get antidepressants if you don't need them? Why would you go get painkillers if you don't need them? Why would you, um, why would you use cannabis if you don't need it? Mm-hmm. If it's not helpful to you, you know? Um, just, you know, if you don't have, um, if you don't deal with depression or addictions, like those types of things, then don't sign up to be um, a guinea pig at Johns Hopkins uh, going through a psilocybin treatment. You right. know what I mean? If there's, if you don't need it, don't don't worry about it. Right. Um, but for the people that need it, they need something. Um, man, I mean, it would seem like it would be it would be better to try some of this natural stuff first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's fascinating to watch some of this people who are most against that will run to the doctor and get any kind of chemical that the doctor says is okay. It's like, but, yeah, but you can't have, you know, no, you should stay away from like that mushroom or that flower, right. you know, that's scary. Like, right. Yep. Yep. But we're on medication. It's all just conditioning. It is. Yeah. It is conditioning. Yeah. I mean, the, um, the, um, the people that made these, all these painkillers in the eighties, these, uh, big drug companies, assured the FDA that it was not addictive, which is so silly. Like it's so obviously addictive, mm-hmm. but no, they were assuring everyone in the eighties is not addictive. As it turns out, it's very addictive highly and people die on it because yeah. it's so addictive. What else? Indeed. What else you want to cover on here, Patrick? It's a good conversation, man. Um, yeah. It's relevant. I think um, I do. I do think that we'll see movement happen on these topics. I think that there is enough shaking going on in our country in terms of the power structure, in terms of the influence, even the two-party system. You have to wonder: is it is it on its last legs? You know, um, it's hard to say. I mean, there's a lot of chaos that's been unleashed with COVID nineteen and all that. It's hard to say how that all plays out. But I would. I, I think we. You know, we'll either. Coming out of this, our country will either go more totalitarian and clamp down, less freedom, or it will wisely see that 
when we need more opportunity, we need growth, we need to relax the the regulatory structures. We need to let people run, let people go and, you know, realize more of their potential and, and put, to, you know, their creativity to work and, and improve their communities and their families and so forth. So I, hopefully that's the direction we go. And if we do, I think we'll legalize cannabis and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not much for regulation, but, you know, maybe regulated appropriately or whatever. But yep. um, I think that's going to happen. Um if, if for no other reason for the economic upside of it um, coming yeah. out of this economic downturn that I see. Yeah. Yeah. So. I agree. And, you know, to put a kind of a cap on the drug war thing, I mean, we mm. barely scratched the surface on that. Um, and this is the thing I would say to it is we've already looked at some numbers here. I mean, 480,000 a year dying from tobacco you know, a fraction of that dying from illegal drugs. I mean, just a fraction of that. Um, this is not a situation where, eh, drugs, legal, illegal, drug war, no drawer, drug war, you know, potato, potato. When you see some videos of these people getting drug out of their house in the middle of the night because of marijuana, and now it's legal in certain states, and now you have a felony on your record, let alone the years you spend in jail, you get out of jail and you have this mark on you for the rest of your life. Now you can't get certain jobs. You don't have access to the community. It's an injustice. It's an injustice. Terrible. You are put on the sidelines of society. Um, and then can you imagine kids seeing this, a tank rolling down your street, SWAT team rolling out? I mean, dude, it's so absurd. Like it's, it's almost embarrassing. On a, it's a, it's an, it's an embar- it's, a, it's becoming an embarrassing reflection on the government, and yeah. we roll out on the on our own streets and we knock down these doors, and I just can't imagine kids seeing that. So, um, that's like that's what's going on right now, and that's just going to continue. P- people are going to use drugs whether it's legal or not. Right. The policies that you're talking about, the people that make the decision to implement those policies, don't live in the neighborhoods where that happens. That's a good it's point. Like not their kids getting. Yeah. You know, locked up for life for, you know, a three strikes and you're out rule or some stupid thing. Even though their kids are using the same substances. Right. They're just at college or they're in a different part of the uh, community. Yeah. Um, a couple of resources. The The New Jim Crow is a great book if someone's interested in learning more about the criminal justice system, uh, some of the injustices there, how race is tied in with all of that. It's a great book. Another, I don't know, have you seen the 13th documentary? I haven't. Yeah, it's on Netflix. It's just called the Thirteenth or Thirteenth. Um, and um, actually, the there was an article today in the Wall Street Journal about um, this lady. I forget um, what her name is now, but she's at Netflix. She's like vice president of production at Netflix, and apparently, she just has a wicked great eye for catching good stories. She's the one that got um, Tiger King on air on Netflix, and. Um, there was another one that she, uh, another documentary was super well known that she was involved with. I forget which one that was now, but um, the thirteenth was one of hers too. Mm. Now, I mean, she didn't produce it, but she she made sure it got on Netflix. So yeah, that one that one um, is kind of a documentary summary of the new Jim Crow. So it's great. How the book How to Change Your Mind? We talked about that. Um, another documentary called Trip of Compassion. Have you seen that? I've not seen it, but okay. I, it's on You've my heard list. about it. Yeah. Trip of Compassion. Um, I, that is not on Netflix. I think you have to go, I think you have to Google it and just kind of pay for it somehow. It's three or four bucks. That's really good. It talks about um, studies done in Israel with uh, MDMA, using MDMA for 
counseling mm-hmm. and uh, like psychotherapy and psychiatry, that type of thing. It's a, it's really good. I heard about that from Tim Ferriss. And then also Tim Ferriss is a great resource. He's, he's uh, spending a lot of money, I think a million dollars plus on the psychedelic research right now. And he's tied in with Johns Hopkins University and he's very interested in it. I, I don't know all of the reasons why, although I know that he has struggled with depression as well mm-hmm. and, and mental health. Mm-hmm. I suspect that's a motivator for him. So um, I think that's a great resource as well. You were talking about stats, and now that you were just mentioned mental health again, how many people die of suicide every year? Oh, that's a great question. Because I, I bet know, actually it'd be interesting to see how much you could reduce that number with the right policies and the right treatment options around psychedelics. Sorry. Another thing that I want to just talk about briefly before we go to, and we can finish this up first, but um, how should we talk about these things to our kids? You know, it's, um, I have friends who have died from overdoses. I have friends who have kids, or at least I, I know people my, who have peers who have kids. We're not close, but who have perished, you know, from drug overdoses young, you know. And I've been thinking a lot about that. So I want to just, I have a couple thoughts on that, but... Um, Suicide... In 2016, 45,000 deaths. 45,000. So if that's you could, a lot. If you could say that's if, more than I thought. If you cut down on depression, you know, how well, many we, lives we would might, you save? We might have more people dying in this country from suicide than illegal drugs. We probably do, yeah. And if you had a proper psychedelic therapeutic regime, a re- routine of some kind, you might be able to save some lives, yeah. That's just a graph I found on Google real quick. Um, Back to your, I mean, don't you think the way to do that is the same way that you would have a conversation about race or sex? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it shouldn't be just one conversation. It should be an open conversation. You know, a thousand conversations. Um, Talk about it openly. The different types of drugs. And here's what happens. And here's the things you'd want to watch out for. Um, I think, uh, I think being open with it and upfront with it and talking through it and, and, and being specific, that seems key. Like instead of just lumping all drugs together, like be specific, here's cannabis and here's cocaine and here's heroin, here's these different things and watch out for, you know, all of that. And, and not, cause the thing is like not talking about it, it's not going to change whether your kid uses it or not. Generally right. speaking, it's much better to get in front of it. I think it's a good point to make too, to kind of address the, um, well, this is a drug that is kind of a gateway to harder drugs, the gateway thing, right? Yes, like, I yes, I'm glad you bit. brought that up. Um, because that's what I hear when I talk to some people about legalization. It's like, well, it's a gateway drug to these harder drugs, even though it's not really harmful and it doesn't seem to be really addictive. It does, you know, has this gateway thing attached to it. And I've been thinking a lot about that, and, you know, especially when I see people who I really, my heart goes out to them because they lost someone. You know, and it's like, okay, like what, what was going on there? You know, and you know, the one situation I know, you know, the kid was, got into marijuana pretty young and, you know, conservative home or fairly conservative background. And so that, that was kind of like that, I I assume in his mind, that was kind of the same cut from the same cloth coming out of the same bin as all these other things. It was all prohibited. It was all bad, you know? And so... You know, when you try marijuana and it's like, okay, that's kind of nice and it doesn't really seem to have any downside that you can tell and it's like you can kind of take it or leave it. It's like some kids 
when they're young, they don't find it that way. They find it more. I think it's, I think kids are probably more, um, and to be clear, I'm not recommending it for kids, but yeah. I think kids are more susceptible to some of the, having it hijack their reward systems in their brain and all that. But generally speaking, psychedelics and, and cannabis are not addictive. Right. Not chemically addictive. And they can become habit forming. And I think they become habit forming more often for younger people. But so if, if you look at that through the lens of shame and you look at yourself through this lens of brokenness and shame because you're, you have a habit of smoking weed, then when you have an opportunity to take something else, if you, if you have, if, if it's not in the light, if it's not, you know, something that we're able to talk about without shame, I think it can create this shadow area of their life where that all just exists as part of the same thing. And it's like, well, I've, I've had some weed and I like that. Now, you know, I've got some heroin and that seems really powerful. And now all of a sudden you're in a whole different universe. Yeah. You know, when it comes to consequences, when it comes to impact on your life, all that stuff. And then, you know, you buy some heroin and it's laced with fentanyl and you're gone, you know, you're 16 and you're dead. Yep. Um, And it seems like it's just time to have a conversation with kids and go like, these are all like, these are all the things that are out there. These are the risks. These are the potential rewards. Like the, the old idea of just trying to, to prohibit it doesn't work. I totally agree. Um, to touch on the gateway thing just a little bit, you know, I've heard someone say that, uh, you know, ultimately milk is the gateway drug because everyone that's done, everyone that's basically, you know, died from an overdose of whatever drug has also drank milk at some point. Mm-hmm. That's probably an exaggeration, but um, I think the very fact that we're lumping in cannabis as a gateway drug and we never talk about tobacco and we never talk about alcohol is primarily or maybe even solely because we don't view tobacco and alcohol as drugs. Mm-hmm. And if we did, I would have to imagine that everyone that winds up abusing drugs first drank alcohol. And I would imagine that all, nearly everyone or maybe everyone that winds up abusing drugs first smoke tobacco. So does cannabis pop in there at some point, you know, on this trajectory? Possibly, probably. But well, I don't think... I don't think... Look at the group of people you're talking about. Like, here's a group of people who... You're talking about people who have used hard drugs, right? So you're talking about people who are willing to do something that they know is risky in exchange for some brief pleasure, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so that's a a certain subset of the population Mm -hmm. that does that. And it's also the people who, you know, for whatever reason, don't have enough other positive things in their life going on that they're aware of Mm -hmm. at that time to keep them from being interested in these other things. Yes. It's like the... um, experiment that they did with a rat and cocaine like it turns out if you have a rat that has you know access to cocaine and you deprive it of social pleasure it'll just you know consume cocaine until it dies yes but if you have cocaine available in any quantity that it wants but you also have you know it in a social setting with family and friends etc it's like it doesn't drink the cocaine that's right it doesn't consume the cocaine do you know what happens with sorry go ahead so, so it's like well, so you already have people who are obviously part of this group who are willing to to risk, you know, 
for this experience. And there are people who, for whatever reason, don't see the positive things going on around them. So it's like they're kind of the rat in the cage without the friends, maybe. Mm-hmm. So they're predisposed to this destructive behavior. So it's not like cannabis is a gateway to that. It's like right. the same group of people has tried that too, because they're in this group of people who maybe, well, they're, they've consumed heroin, let's say. Yeah. You know? So yeah. that makes you a particular kind of individual along that line. Right. I agree. So, and you know how many rats, when they give LSD and go for a really hard trip in a cage, do you know how many of those keep coming back to it? None of them. No. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> yeah. when, when a rat takes a hard trip on LSD, it's he's like, good I for just, a while. I just saw myself become that guitar. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I literally popped out of this cage for a little while and floated around uh, Mother Nature. I think I'm, I'm I'm solid for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's 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 true though. That's not a joke. Um, when they give rats LSD or psilocybin, they don't keep hitting that button. No. No. They go for a trip and they're good for a while. Um, but on your, I'm glad you brought that thing up about, uh, or that point up about being addictive. Yeah. It could be habit forming. I mean, look, dude, I am, I am, I'm habit forming. There's my personality is habit forming. You know what I mean? Like it's, and, and it's, it's not all bad. It's good. Like I wake up and I like to have my kombucha and I like to have an espresso on the way to work. Not at the, not the house, not the office on the way to work, Mm -hmm. you know? I don't like to eat for a while. I like to eat when I get home. I like to, I'm very habit forming and sure, sometimes that makes me a little bit inflexible, but there's positives there. Um, but that's different than addicted. Mm-hmm. And so, um, if you have someone on cocaine, for example, for a period of time or heroin, and then you stop, I mean, some, some of these drugs, you have to basically tie them down. And they're vomiting and sweating and feverish and on the verge of just death, it seems. Like just awful sickness for days and days to get that out of their system. Um, but that's not the case with cannabis. No. And actually, alcohol even does that. Oh, too. for you sure. You can die from, like, if you're really drunk and you are a drunk and you've been a drunk for a long time, you can't just quit cold turkey. That's right. Like, you'll yeah. die. Yeah. And so that's the thing to point out, I guess, with yeah, cannabis With isn't cannabis like that, and, and the psychedelics, and even psychedelics in general aren't like that at all. Uh, you can quit without physical manifestations, generally. Yeah. Um, I've read about like people who are habitual cannabis users who then quit. Like the the one thing that they they tend to use cannabis to help them fall asleep, and so when the cannabis mm-hmm. goes away, it takes like a week or so to regulate the sleep back again. So, oh, I see. Fall asleep at a regular time, it can take like a week or two. I see. So, yeah. But that's yeah. like the only, that's not a sign of addiction. That could be some of the habit forming stuff and yeah. like some of the dependencies that, that are built around some of those habits. But I went through a stretch for a couple of years where it took a, a glass or two of bourbon at night to get me to sleep decent, mm-hmm. um, which is not good. Well, alcohol seems to not be great for sleep. No, because the thing is, it would get me to sleep quickly, but then I would often I'd wake up in like a night sweat, and sometimes with night terrors, mm. I wake up and think someone's in the house. This is very common. If I would drink some bourbon or something before I go to sleep, I had I don't drink very much, but um, it was May. What was it? Um, what's the 
holiday. I'm drawing a blank right now. But the, May 4th? May, April 20th? No. <laughs> why, why do why we just have margaritas on Tuesday? Oh, um, Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo. Thank you. I was drawing <laughs> like, a blank. I'm like, holiday. May the 4th, May the 5th. Cinco de Mayo. That's right. This quarantine has really done the yeah. number on it. So, but we had some friends over and I made margaritas. So, mm. you know, make a pitcher of margaritas and fresh lime juice, some good tequila. Yeah. You know, it's nice. Um, and I had like three over the course of the night. I was so sick. I, I didn't sleep good that night. I woke up in the middle of the night and had a terrible headache, like yeah. like three margaritas. I'm like, yeah, that's nothing. I wasn't, I, was, yeah. I wasn't drunk. I wasn't even, you know, yeah. it's like, but it was basically, it felt like it poisoned me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm not a big well, fan. Well, it feels that way for a reason. Yeah. Because if you drink a little you too, are. Yeah, yeah. Because you are a little bit poisoned. Yeah. yeah. No doubt about it. Um, anything else you wanted to cover on here? No, this has been fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this has been fun. Good comment. Thanks for being back on again. Absolutely. Have a good night. Thank you, Ken.